On this episode of the Utilitarian Podcast, I talk with Neil Sinababu. Neil is a professor of philosophy at the University of Singapore. Our conversation has two broad topics. We talk about meta-ethics and we talk about world government as a way to prevent human extinction. We discuss consciousness as the basis for ethics, reductionism about ethics, whether morality can be a science and how to handle feeling alienated from your own values. We then discuss world government as a way to solve collective action problems and decrease extinction risk. And I ask whether creating a world government is itself risky because it might turn totalitarian. The sound quality on my side is not the best in this episode, but fortunately Neil has lots of interesting things to say, so he speaks the most. As always, you can reach me at utilitarianpodcast at gmail.com if you have questions or suggestions or criticism. Neil, thank you for coming on the Utilitarian Podcast. Wonderful to be here, Gus. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Okay, we're going to talk about metaethics. And just to begin with, could you introduce metaethics? Yeah, in normative ethics or ethics as people usually think about it, we're trying to figure out which actions are right and wrong, which states of affairs are good and should be created, which ones are bad and should be avoided, uh, which people are the good virtuous people and which ones are the, the bad people. And there's also broader social questions about what justice is that blended political philosophy at some point. But meta-ethics is where we ask some questions about the answers to those questions. So uh, questions of if it really is wrong to lie, is that an objective fact? about the world? And if so, is it an objective fact that we can find in some scientific way that's about concrete stuff in the world that is uh, empirically knowable? Or is it something that we'd have to do something else in order to know? For example, that we would have to use a special kind of intuition that we use, say, in mathematics, according to some, especially Platonist theories of mathematics, or uh, the old traditional way of uh, saying it was beyond science was to say that only God could set up good and evil. So yeah, there's a lot of options if they are objective facts, how they could be objective facts. And there's a lot of options where they aren't objective facts. Maybe our moral judgments are just expressions of our desires or emotions. In that case, it's fine to have moral judgments that don't correspond to objective truth. Your desires usually don't correspond to objective truth. And if you're just saying, hooray for that, hey, no objectivity requirement. And then your moral judgments might be just fine because they're just mere hoorays and boos. So that was the old non-cognitivist view. People have moved to more sophisticated things, but there's a lot of options. There's also the relativist option. Maybe these aren't objective and they're like fashion. They're just the preferences of a culture at a time. So all kinds of things you could say. Uh, really, among the views that say they aren't objective, my favorite one is error theory uh, that says there are just no moral facts. Nothing non-objective could live up to being morality. So really, since we just have a bunch of non-objective things where morality is supposed to be, we really have to say there is no moral truth because it just doesn't live up to what we thought moral truth would be. And that seems to me a very respectable kind of view that's all. And so I'll be skeptical about meta-ethics as a field and ask, why should I care? Why should people in general care about meta-ethics? Isn't this some very academic endeavor that doesn't really affect what we're trying to do in the world? It would be like that if it didn't affect normative ethics. And a lot of people have pursued meta-ethics in a way that separates these two domains, where they say, here, we're just trying to do something like, well, in philosophy of mathematics, whatever the philosophers of mathematics say, the actual mathematicians, it's not going to affect them. They just go on and do what they're doing. And the philosophers will argue about whether they are engaging with Plato's forms 
or whether they're just manipulating symbols. But either way, the math, the mathematical truths come out the same. It's just a question of whether they are uh, Plato's forms, truths, or whether they're truths about the symbols. So some people see it that way. And I don't think that it's all going to be the same, uh, normative ethics-wise, how the metaethics turns out. Because if there are objective moral facts and there's something like scientific facts, in that case, the right way to investigate them will be something scientific. And perhaps a natural thing to expect is that they'd surprise us as much as science surprised us. When we discover that water isn't a simple substance, it's actually, if you took two different gas molecules, take the hydrogen gas, split it in half, take the two atoms, take the oxygen, and split it in half, take one of those two atoms and stick them all together. That's what water is. Okay, that's surprising. Nobody thought it would be like pieces of things we know of as gases. That would have astonished people in the 1700s, but so it is. And maybe ethics, if it turns out to be a scientific kind of endeavor, we will find the surprises. If it can be empirically known, if it's about concrete, objective stuff that can be surprising to us. And that's how I think ethics in the end turns out. It's not something that matches our intuitions very neatly and approaches on which it matches our intuitions. You're either giving the mind amazing powers to figure out moral truths, or you're weakening the moral truths so they can just be shadows of your thoughts and giving up on objectivity. And not happy with either of those options. I don't want to make the heroic assumptions that allow for us to know these amazing facts. And I don't think we can settle for real ethics that isn't objective. A true morality would have to be all of those knowable in some way that is genuinely well, knowable and not through some kind of faking. And it would have to be genuinely objective and universal. Another objection would be to think that whatever the meta-ethical truth, we can all agree on what we want the world to look like in, in practice. So we want, we, everyone wants a, a flourishing society. We can wor work towards that as a vague goal without settling these difficult philosophical issues. So there might be situations in which uh, that is possible. Situations in which all reasonable ethical views uh, point in the same direction. We would be lucky as a political community, I suppose, if things turned out that way. And I don't think things actually turn out that way. I think moral disagreement is, in fact, in politics and in society today, reasonably widespread. And if you look historically, not at the sort of narrow sets of views that we have in our current time, then I guess the current state of the world imposes some constraints on. There are certain kinds of views that you couldn't have and participate in the modern global economy. Views that are so hostile to outsiders that they just prevent you from engaging with others. Those, those views have been held at some level in the past. A lot of societies go to the point where they think it's okay to commit genocides against others and even heroic to commit genocide, even obligatory to commit genocide. That really weighs heavily on me in a way that it doesn't weigh on, I think, a lot of people working in meta-ethics. <laughs> the way I see what we're supposed to do in normative ethics is we have to get, we can't just sit on this idea that our intuitions are very widely shared and that lots of people have nice intuitions like us. Just a look back before 1945, not just to regimes immediately before, but the entire sweep of human history before just shows you lots of people who think killing others really is the heroic thing to do, killing entire other societies. It's just, it's a crazy world out there. Uh, it's actually only around that time, around World War II, a little bit before, that Raphael Lemkin coins the term genocide because there isn't even 
a term that carries the kind of weight that we have now for that. It's funny, Lemkin is thinking of an alternate word for it first, and at first he tries out vandalism as a word, you know, for genocide. <laughs> what a strange linguistic fact that, like, <laughs> we switched over to the other word now. And yeah, yeah, that, that's what it is. It, it's just, yeah, the past is just monstrous some levels. And that kind of monstrosity shows us how far human moral views can diverge, how important it is to try to find something that will take us reliably towards the truth. Because I don't trust the intuitions of a species that falls into pro-genocide views as often as humans do. Good point. If we look at the philosophical community, I see two broad tents, we could say, of, of views. One is realist and non-naturalist, and the other is naturalist and anti-realist. And I am worried about people perceiving this as a dichotomy where you can either be a moral realist or you can be a naturalist. Mm -hmm. Is there a way forward for a naturalistic realism? Gus, you have spoken to my heart. The project with which I began philosophy as like an 18-year-old when I decided to major in the subject was, can I find the moral truth, the truth about good and evil in the natural world in a way continuous with the sciences, broadly speaking? I didn't even really understand that was what I was trying to do, but that was just what the aim was from the beginning. Broadly empiricist kind of way of finding objective moral truth is what I was interested in. And I think that can be done. Metaethics today really doesn't think it can be done. And your description of what the field is like at present is, I think, accurate to the way it has moved over the last 30 years, especially. And to go into why it moved that way, I think the focus on reasons for action as the fundamental thing to look for in metaethics really made that happen. Because the way reasons for action are just lend themselves to non-naturalist treatments, the kinds of things you'd see in Jonathan Dancy, Tim Scanlon, many other philosophers go that way. And there's also anti-realist ways. I feel like uh, Christine Korsgaard did a lot to suggest something that really took the psychology of reflection and deliberation seriously. And it seems that the most natural way to develop that was just to go anti-realist with the psychology of reflection and deliberation being given a certain kind of non-cognitivist interpretation or something like that. So there are views like that out there too. People also do the deliberation thing in a non-naturalist way, but at any rate, that's the kind of set of approaches we have. You start out from judgments about reasons and you give them either a non-natural metaethical treatment where they're describing abstract facts that you only know through reason, the Plato's forms kind of thing. David Enoch describes himself as a Platonist, and that's the kind of picture we have there. Michael Humer has similar views. All those, that whole range of views is, is available on one side, or you say, really, we can't figure out how this is described in the natural world. We don't want to go in for the non-naturalism if we're naturalists about the metaphysics. And then you go for anti-realism, like you said, and non-cognitivists are doing this. So th these two camps, you, you think there's a kind of a, a third way? Absolutely. And one of the things I want to do to get there is push back against the idea that what we're doing in metaethics is trying to characterize reasons for action. And I want to go into why uh, that's really not a good way to go here. I think there's a big problem with understanding action as fundamental uh, metaethically. Because the psychology that engages with action most directly isn't the psychology of belief. And my work on the Humean theory of motivation was really where this came out to me very clearly. So if you look at the production of action, 
the real things that seem to direct and drive us are our desires, or as Hume called them, our passions. And the role of belief in the direction of action is just, well, I have this means end belief about this is how I attain the end that I desire or have a passion for. So the direction seems to be coming from passion or desire. And the rule of belief is just, okay, if you want that, this is how you get it. Now, what reasons for action are supposed to do is, well, they're supposed to direct your action. They're supposed to be the things that pick which action you're going to do. And not just, this is how I find uh, the means to uh, achieve my antecedently desired end. No, they're supposed to set your ends, set the goals of action. Now, here's the problem with this in human psychology. The way that humans are getting the goals of action seems to just be they have these desires and the desires drive them. Michael Smith and some other philosophers have thought uh, the way it actually happens is you have a belief about reasons for action or some other thing. And this, you can have desires driving you, but uh, there's a way to get motivation if you have a belief about reasons for action that can just create a desire and then the desire will drive you. And so Smith presents himself as a Humean theorist about motivation for that reason. He says, I'm doing the desire-belief thing too. But he allows uh, belief to generate desires by reasoning. So ultimately, it's belief about reasons that's driving us. And Smith's view was regarded as a Humean desire-belief view in good standing for a very long time and still largely is. The thing that happened there, though, it made it look like the desire-belief psychology of human action it made it look like that psychology was compatible with the reasons for action view because you just get a belief about a reason and that would create a new desire just automatically through, not automatically, but through quick, simple inference, the way inference usually works. And you just get this. And if you didn't do it, you were irrational or something. That's how Smith sees it. If you can't, if you, you think you have a reason to do this, but you aren't motivated, well, then you have acrasia, weakness of will, and you're irrational. And that was the way that Smith thought about it. It's the way that a lot of people thought about it, even those who call themselves humans. But looking at actual human motivation, I don't think that's the case. And the really good empirical case for this, I'm not going to go to any of the uh, psychology that got into trouble with the replication crisis. A much stronger case is provided by the failure of gay conversion therapy, as I see it. Because this was a project by people who really were invested in changing people's desires, in some cases in line with their moral beliefs, because often people who were sent in for this, many were unwilling and forced in in some kind of way. But there were people who were doing this because they wanted to be right with God and right with the holy way of doing things and right with what was good and what was right and what was virtuous. That's how they saw what they were doing. And they wanted to get rid of their homosexual desires. They had the moral beliefs, the beliefs that there is a reason, all different kinds, moral reasons, uh, practical reasons dealing with the afterlife, any kind of reason you want to put in, you can find it there. Uh, a reason to have different desires to do different actions, to be heterosexual, to get married to someone of the opposite gender, all kinds of things. You can put them in however you want. And the attempt to generate new desires, new passions from these moral beliefs completely failed. Even with the experimenters, as it were, being completely motivated to get their result. This was a case where they really wanted to get that result or else what they were doing is complete garbage. And it was complete garbage. 
their result could not be found. It completely failed. And the only people who believe in this are people now within the evangelical network. And that's, that's not where, you know, you want to be, I think, as any kind of naturalistically inclined person. So that's really where I see the failure of moral belief to generate certain kinds of practical consequences that were boasted for it. I don't think the content of moral belief can be analyzed as fundamentally practical or action guiding because we're just not seeing the outputs from the moral attitudes that suggest that. They don't directly motivate action and they don't do the Michael Smith thing of generating new desires through reasoning. So there is really nothing here, no case here for the content of moral belief to be a distinctively practical motivational thing in the way that anti-Humians and even Michael Smith and the other Humians who allow that intermediate position suggest. So really, I think this, that whole project of understanding moral judgment as fundamentally practical is empirically now defeated. What we need to go, do is go in a different way, not the way that Immanuel Kant went where he thought all these judgments were about reasons for action. It's about feeling. It's about the perceptual experiential side. That's really where the content of moral judgment, I think, is to be found. And when you look at human psychology, you just see that the perceptual experiential side, that's incredibly fertile. Tons of stuff is going on there. Perception goes on in the human mind so many times per second, perceptual belief formation. Right now, I'm having all kinds of beliefs immediately in the moment formed about the face of Gus and the thoughts of Gus as he looks back at me. And I see myself and I'm like, oh, I'm moving around a lot. You watch a sports game or something like that where things are moving and your beliefs are just flickering so fast moving. That's where you find fast activity in belief that is just going on a whole lot, nothing really strained about it. The human mind is just set up to deliver perception to belief. And the way it does that is some content of, comes in perception. You represent the world a certain way, and then you believe that the world is the way you see it. That's what you usually do. There are a couple cases where maybe you have some reason to doubt that the world is the way it seems. But for the most part, the world seems a way and you just take that into belief once you pay attention to how the world seems. Now, what happens when a feeling like guilt comes in perceptually? Well, it's an experience, just like my experience of uh, my shirt as blue. If you uh, have an experience of a bluish color on my shirt or a sort of a yellowish color on the map behind me, you form beliefs about the map being yellow, my shirt being blue as a result. So that is just how beliefs are quickly formed. And if the feeling of guilt comes in about something you did, you remember, I, I have this often, I remember something I did 15 years ago where I said something that was mean that I didn't realize was mean. I'm like, oh, I have that feeling. And then that it just looks to me like I did something wrong so clearly. Wish I hadn't done that. And, and you feel, you believe that you said something wrong back then when that feeling strikes you because that's how it looks. That's how I think moral judgment really works. And now we're not thinking about the content of moral judgment as, okay, this is action guiding, even though it's about an action. Really, the way to understand it is like color. It's perceptual. A feeling came in, and I believed that what there was in the world was something that matched my feeling. A wrongness in the action, and that's what I see wrongness as. It's not fundamentally there is a universal or categorical reason not to do this. You can build that up at some level, but that doesn't characterize the fundamental nature of the thing. It's that this action has the disgusting color of guilt. It's, it's basically what it is. So that's how I see the content of moral judgment. It's really a perceptual thing to be understood along the lines of color. 
And if you do it that way, now you're not in the psychology of action. You're in the psychology of perception. And in the psychology of perception, there's a lot more opportunities to get realism going. Because all this perceptual content can be evaluated for accuracy, which is just one step removed from truth. When it's in perception, you call it accuracy. When it's in belief, you call it truth. Your perception of there being a map behind me, you immediately form the belief there's a map behind me. The perceptual state can be accurate or inaccurate, depending on what corresponds with, whether it corresponds with reality. The belief can be true or false, depending on whether it corresponds with reality. And I see what we're trying to do in getting objectivity, not, well, truth is what objectivity looks like in belief, but in perception, accuracy can be objectivity because it's correspondence fundamentally. Your mind corresponding to reality is just a really awesome, strong kind of objectivity. And let's go for that. Let's try to get these judgments about, I should feel guilty about that, or guilt is the thing to feel about that action I did, or about this beautiful future that could be hope is the feeling to have. I'm a utilitarian. I like some of these brave new worldish futures. And other people are like, no, that's horrible. They see it with horror. The question to be asked, is this future something to hope for or to be horrified by? And that's where even these science fiction-y futures where things uh, are strange to many people. They're horrified and I hope for that because there's more pleasure. In it. Which is the right feeling to have, I think is the right way to understand the content of moral judgment and not the reasons for action framework that metaethicists for the last 30 years have been digging themselves deeper and deeper into. I think there is nothing there for finding any sort of important, interesting moral truth. You can go anti-realist in the end and that's all you can do. But there is objective and universal truth to be found in the naturalistic realist way if you look at this as fundamentally perceptual. So what I believe is that What's fundamental here in these feelings is pain and pleasure and more complex feelings such as guilt or horror is colored by pain and pleasure. So we can separate feelings into feelings that feel good or feelings that feel bad. And this feeling of goodness is the central and fundamental objective value that's within our conscious uh, experience. And so do you agree that pain and pleasure is the fundamental value and guilt and horror, for example, is, is a, you could call them secondary or more complex phenomena? Absolutely. I, I, I think that the pleasure and displeasure, as I like to say, just to get beyond the bodily connotations of pain, but you're getting it basically. Yes, I think those are, as far as moral facts go, I am a utilitarian, so I take pleasure and displeasure to be the fundamental value and disvalue that there are. I'm a hedonic utilitarian. Yes, that's right. And the interesting thing about our positively and negatively valenced moral judgments is that all of them, as far as I can tell, follow this rule where if they're positively valenced, if they present an action is right, a state of affairs is good, a person is virtuous. In that case, they're pleasant. The feelings that we have that reveal the world to us that way are pleasant feelings. So if you think about the future and this future state of affairs, perhaps where there are people living in a very strange way, but having a whole lot of pleasure, maybe they're all in the experience machine or something like that. And they're all very happy. I think that's good. And to get into why I think that's something to hope for, this is where the feeling view can get correspondence going in a way that is just not even a possibility on the reasons for action view. Suppose I hope for the 
experience machine future. The core thing in my feeling of hope that makes it a positively valenced representation is the pleasure in it. I am pleased by that possibility. Now, feelings like horror, if you're horrified by everybody in the experience machine, you're displeased. It couldn't be horror with just pure pleasure. If, if there was no displeasure in it, it would be something other than horror. To be hope, it has to be pleasant, and to be horror, it has to be unpleasant, or at least push your pleasure up or push your pleasure down. That's what hope and horror do, I think. So that is fundamental to their nature, and without that, they aren't mortal feelings. So why should we hope for the experience machine future? In the experience machine future, by stipulation, there's a lot more pleasure. And if you hope for it, the hope in your feelings is in objective correspondence with the thing it represents, the experience machine future. There is pleasure in your feeling. There is pleasure in the future. And I think that match is what makes hoping for the experience machine future objectively accurate. There is pleasure in both. Match. But the person who's horrified by the experience machine future has a negative judgment, a displeasure judgment, a displeasure-laden judgment about a pleasure-laden scenario. And that's a mismatch. And that's why that person is out of correspondence with reality. Similar for the person who is neutral about the experience machine future. That person isn't so horribly mismatched, but there's still a mismatch. So yeah, that's how I get hedonism out of the positive valence, negative valence, neutrality framework and get it to correspond to pleasure, neutrality, and displeasure in the world. More pleasure in reality is the thing to hope for. Creating more pleasure is something to be proud of. Being the kind of person or those kinds of people who uh, are disposed to create more pleasure, those are the people to admire. And all those feelings, hope, pride, and admiration are pleasant. They correspond and match. Meanwhile, a horror at great suffering in the future, guilt about causing displeasure, a hatred of those who would intentionally cause displeasure to others, and contempt of, towards those who just systematically cause displeasure to others, perhaps unintentionally, but just by being really dumb and mean or something like that. I, mean, I guess if they're mean, hatred is more it, but if they're just careless about it and just causing displeasure all over the place, contempt could be the attitude. <laughs> There's a match between the pleasure and displeasure in the attitude and the pleasure and displeasure in the world. And I think that's what the correspondence between the mind and the world and ethics is fundamentally grounded in. What you're doing, or what I see you as doing is understanding the complex moral concepts such as guilt and horror in terms of the basic moral concept that pleasure is, is goodness. It's very interesting to me, this fundamental uh, moral fact that, that pleasure is goodness. How, how could this be an objective fact? Good. So it's objectivity. If we define that the way, for example, Sharon Street defines objectivity, she calls it attitude independence or stance independence. So that's, it's good independently of what anyone thinks or feels about it. I think the goodness of pleasure is that way. It's good independently of what anyone actually does think or feel about it. So suppose we're in a world where everybody is horrified by the experience machine future, where everybody is experiencing a lot of pleasure, but they're disconnected from reality. Okay, that doesn't make the experience machine future bad because in that future, there still is a lot of pleasure. 
And what are our people doing? They're having the down judgment towards the up thing. Mismatch. They're wrong. They are judgments. No matter what people's judgments are, they don't change the truth. So it looks that way like objectivity, and that's what proper objectivity is supposed to be. Now, as theorists, there's something we can do to discover this. And there you might begin in the feelings. But what we're doing there, just to understand why this doesn't lose objectivity, let's just think about how you'd figure out the truth of a belief. Now, to know whether a belief is true, we'd have to know what the content of the belief is. If we just say, Gus has a belief, and ask Neil, Neil, is Gus's belief true? Come on, tell me what the belief is, and then, then I can give you a better answer. Yeah, you got to go to the content first for me to give a, a good answer. We've got to figure out if we're talking about are moral judgments true or false, or uh, uh, can they correspond to things in the world? We've got to investigate what their content is, or we're not doing a good job. So. I think here, what I'm trying to do with all this psychological background, the gay conversion therapy example, is trying to get clear on what the content of moral judgment is. Is it really the practical thing that, say, Christine Korsgaard, Michael Smith, Tim Scanlon, all the big metaethicists almost of the last 30 years, they've told us, and I think they're wrong. They really did not follow the lesson of gay conversion therapy, which was out there to be seen by everybody. And it shows them that moral judgment, when you have it, just is practically not very powerful. It really doesn't have any practical oomph of its own. That all comes from a desire one way or the other. And so now let's do what we do when we have things formed by perception. Let's investigate whether the perception was accurate. That would be a nice way to get a handle on this and understand what makes these perceptions accurate. Because the content of the perception is going to be absorbed by the content of the belief. That's how it is with color. You see a blue thing, you think the thing is blue. You see a yellow thing, you think the thing is yellow. You see a thing that is misleadingly colored, maybe a white thing in red light, and you form a false belief about it, maybe. We need to investigate it that way and see what's going on with people's beliefs, understand the content. And once we understand the content, this belief is about blue, this one is about yellow, this one's about red, and this one is about what to feel guilty about. Once we see all that, we can look for the right things in the world and see if the world matches up. And while the reasons for action views were having trouble matching up with the world, because where are the reasons for action? You know, we've invented something here that I don't think fits naturally into the world. When we look for accuracy conditions for feeling, understand them in terms of correspondence with the perceptual states that led to the belief, namely these feelings, the phenomenology of emotion, guilt, hope, horror, admiration, hatred, contempt, pride, all that. We just try to match the feelings to reality and we find objective universal matches. That's the ethical truth. It's to be found there. And it's a hedonistic ethical truth. That's what the simple stripped down way of looking at the natural world gives you. The scientific worldview, as far as I can tell, gives you a universal and objective morality. And it is hedonic utilitarianism. Take the feeling of pain. When we are experiencing pain, how could this be attitude independent? Isn't it exactly a reaction to the world that's as subjective as they come? So if I burned my hand, for example, I feel pain and this is a, a subjective attitude. How could this be the grounds of an objective morality? You're right. That is a subjective attitude. And at some level, I don't think that attitude is the grounds of an objective morality. The attitude of pain as such isn't really 
anything I emphasize that heavily. Rather, let's just look at the feelings involved. Just the qualia, perhaps, might be the way to talk about this, because that's where I'd see the pleasure and the displeasure. They're just experiences, feelings, just like brightness or volume or something like that. There is just dimensions of experience like that or components of experience. That's the place to find this. Okay, now let's look at pain just to get into the answer to your question. I want to go into the ways that pain really is subjective, like you're saying. Suppose I touch something hot and feel pain. Maybe a different kind of creature that was used to very high heat might not uh, feel any pain at that point. So yeah, in a way, that is painful. Touching that thing is painful. That is subjective. Utilitarianism wasn't a theory about the rightness or wrongness or goodness or badness of touching that thing, which is subjectively painful. It's about the goodness of pleasure and the badness of displeasure. That's what the objective facts are. And now we need to look into which attitudes represent things as distinctively morally charged and in which attitudes we apply moral concepts. Because we're looking for the objectivity of morality here, not the objectivity of painfulness. The objectivity of painfulness I've given up on. If the stove is objectively painful, I'm not going to say that. Some alien will touch the stove and then feel great pleasure. Okay, yeah, that's what's going to happen there. There's no objectivity to be found about what is painful as far as what external thing is pain-causing. Where you can find it is something like pain is bad. It's pain is a kind of displeasure. It's not pain unless there's some displeasure in it. And at least defined that way, pain is bad. Displeasure is the bad thing. And our judgments about displeasure, well, those aren't really pain feelings about it. Displeasure is bad, I think, is not really a content of a tactile judgment about the stove, which is really what I'm having when I'm getting the stove bad, stove painful, uh, stove causes pain, all those things. That's what I'm getting there. It's stove judgments. But really what I want here is pain judgments. And where am I making those? Well, that's really to be found in my hope for a certain future where there is less pain and my horror of a future where there is more. Okay. We have a meta ethics that can ground hedonistic utilitarianism. So what are the best arguments against this view? Ah, let's see. Great. Let me think about this. It's been a while since I've been asked to do this because I've been fighting for the positive view for a while and I haven't yep. really thought of it. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll tell you where the most novel stuff is in this view. And that's a place where I don't know what the counter arguments are, but there are going to be some because I've done something really new here in setting up this view. And I invite you to come up with the best counter argument to it because that's where uh, it's going to be easiest to attack. This is in how I'm seeing the accuracy conditions of our moral feelings. So what makes hope accurate? What makes horror accurate? In answering those questions, we discover what is good and what is bad, I think. Uh, what makes horror accurate is the horrible, the really bad. And what makes hope accurate is the thing to hope for, the good. So yeah, that's what we're trying to figure out here. So how does accuracy work here? My defense of hedonic utilitarianism that I've given you so far is dependent on a certain kind of claim about the accuracy conditions of hope and horror and really of pleasure and displeasure, the, the fundamental things that give them their moral nature. And what I want to say there is that what makes them accurate is qualitative identity with the thing they represent. It's just matching the thing they represent as one golf ball matches another golf ball. Can a bit of pleasure 
match another bit of pleasure, if they're just experiences, if we see them that way, experientially, they can be the same. If it's just a good feeling, matching a good feeling. Yeah, you could get identity between those things at the level of experience between those. And, and then maybe you don't get perfect identity, but you get near matches that are enough for a high degree of accuracy. So accuracy works that way. It's a gradable notion. You can be more and less accurate. Perfect accuracy is rare, but enough accuracy is usually enough. Yeah. And that's still, if you're trying to accurately represent what one golf ball looks like and you give me another, you've given me a great representation of how the other one looks. So accuracy will find it in all kinds of places in more and less ways. You just like don't want the thing where you're feeling the down thing about the up feeling being horrified by children enjoying ice cream as Leon Cass was and that guy that's a vice right there if you're horrified by that those kinds of matches and mismatches are what I'm taking as accuracy and the idea here is that yeah this kind of identity same thing on both sides is what accuracy is why do I think this this is a really novel claim really as far as I can tell a guy named Colin Marshall has told me that a uh, Schopenhauer had an interesting view along these lines uh, Adam Smith's theory of empathy matches these things but it doesn't quite do what I'm doing with moral judgment there's some predecessors but there's hardly anything that brings this in ethics maybe there's some Buddhist or Moist or a uh, Karvaka philosopher in India or somebody in Cyrene back in 300 BC or something like who had this, but I've never seen it. That this match is the qualitative identity is really what it is to be for accuracy. Why do I have this? Here's the neat thing about it. It gives you universality. All metaphysically possible minds that have a pleasure response to something and that demand of it, universality and objectivity. There has to be something real in the world that would make my judgment accurate and make the judgment of every metaphysically possible being who feels as I do accurate. All minds that feel as I do must be accurate. All metaphysically possible minds that feel as I do must be accurate here. If we're talking about an experience of pleasure and the experience is qualitatively identical with pleasure in that way, pleasure to pleasure match, well, everyone who feels the pleasure, it's the same thing. It's pleasure. And any metaphysically possible mind will be accurate to the pleasure of the world because it's just the same thing. So you can get universality and objectivity out of this. And that's the argument for it has to be identity that constructs the match. Only identity, as far as I know, that's the, that's the simplest way to get universal accuracy. You can, of course, be a non-naturalist and build up a whole bunch of complex relations that apply to all possible minds that don't really deal with the content of the internal sensation and just say, hey, there's a non-natural fact that this complicated thing where there is a whole bunch of complex stuff going on, that's what makes our feelings accurate. And non-naturalism can be reconstructed there. You might get a theory that better matches your intuitions and say, yeah, that's right for all po metaphysically possible minds. You can build that up. But there's just nothing empirically to suggest that's really how it is, unless you take our moral intuitions really seriously. And again, I'm the kind of person who thinks human beings are thinking genocide is right pretty often. I am not taking these intuitions as something to build a giant non-naturalist metaphysical structure on top of when we are throughout so much of our history thinking that killing each other in horrible ways is a great thing to do that you should be proud of that you ought to do because the heroic guy who leads your people commanded it or something like that. Or God said, what are people even doing? A God that commanded that would be an evil God. I've, it's just, it's a disaster. 
So I am not taking these seriously enough to build a giant metaphysics on them. Mathematics, I see why people have a case. There's a real case there that those things are corresponding to something pretty amazing because there's just a lot more agreement. There's a guy named Justin Clark Doan in metaphysics who denies this, who thinks eh, it's a lot more similar. But I don't think he's taken a serious empirical look at the frequency of pro-genocide views in human history. Really, you need to do this empirically and look at how often humans are getting it wrong. And they are messing it up. They are getting pro-genocide views. They're just, it's disastrous. So yeah, don't build a giant metaphysical picture on that. Do the simple thing, do accuracy. I agree that we cannot trust our intuitions. And maybe as a, as a let's say critique of your view, I'll, I'll give you my own take on, on the meta-ethics of hedonistic utilitarianism. And I should say uh, that this is not original to me. This is a view developed by Sharon Hewitt Rolette that I have extended, let's say. So in what sense is pain bad? Badness, the, the concept of intrinsic badness or the concept of intrinsic goodness is learned by experience. So when we feel pain, this is the content of the concept of intrinsic badness. And the question is then, so how can we say that pain is badness? When two concepts point at the same thing, then we know that they, that this is the identity re relation we're looking for. And so I see all of the, all other moral concept as I, I see as secondary. So whether a, an action is right, whether a person is virtuous, whether an institution is just must be built up from this very basic fact that pain is badness and pleasure is goodness. And so maybe we are about as close as we can get in, to, to agreeing about these things. But maybe the, the biggest disagreements sometimes arise from people who are very much in agreement. And I would urge you to, to take an even more, even simpler, even more kind of flat-footed view and just have this one central fact that say valence is identical to intrinsic value. I accept that view, that valence is identical to intrinsic value. Yes. Now the question here to go beyond that is, uh, what is the content of moral judgments? Because I want to end up where uh, Sharon uh, Hewitt Rollette ends up. Sharon, if you're watching, hi, you're awesome. I like your work. You have a big role in the paper where I'm talking about this. Uh, I need to send you that paper. Gus, I need to send her this paper. We emailed 10 years ago when we were realizing that we had similar views and it was just great. And I need to show her where I've ended up because I've seen what she's done. Yes, nice. Yeah, but anyway, to get to that, this is actually where I make some changes on top of the of Sherrod's framework, because I think the story about the moral concepts needs to be uh, developed a little bit further. It's not so much that I'm, well, at a certain level, I don't think I'm an analytic naturalist of the kind she is, but I have a way within synthetic naturalism to get the Gus and uh, Sharon view to come out, I think. And the way you were talking about it made it seem more synthetic, that there are two concepts pointing at the same thing, which is the way I like it. I guess if the two concepts are related enough, it could be analytic that you can analyze one into the other and then they point at the same thing. But I want to do it in a way that uh, at least... Uh, leaves open the possibility of a synthetic naturalism because I think there's open question argument problems if you proceed from what Sharon is doing in what seems like the most straightforward way. So I'm trying to build a nice way to get around that and uh, solve those problems for her, really, because it ends up going in a way that she generally suggests. So what's going on here is, uh, and let me ask you this, Gus, because uh, you've presented it as, as your own view. 
what would you say when I'm judging this action is wrong? Do you have a deeper way of analyzing that wrong judgment? So I believe this action is wrong. Is there anything? So some people would say wrong means there is an objective or categorical reason not to do the action. I say it's something, it's an action that you should feel displeased about and feel a feeling like guilt if it's your action or anger if it's someone else's. But anyway, it's an action to have an unpleasant feeling about. Do you have a story about what wrong is analyzed as? Yeah, I would analyze it as this action will not maximize the balance of, of pleasure and pain in the rest of the lifetime of the universe. So that is an incredibly a difficult thing to know whether an action is wrong or right. But I see it as an enormous empirical investigation. So it, when you say uh, murder is wrong, this means that it will cause much more uh, pain than pleasure. Mm. And this is an example of how I believe that all moral concepts can be built up from the basics of, of uh, pain's badness and pleasure's goodness. Okay, yes, yeah, I agree with you on what moral terms refer to in the end. They, in the end, refer to pleasure and displeasure, uh, in the end, and arrangements of pleasure and displeasure in reality. The action-related ones do uh, refer to arrangements of uh, pleasure and displeasure in relation to an action where your action caused lots of pain. So that's when your action is wrong. Yeah. So I think we are in agreement, as far as I can tell, on the reference of these terms. But the question I wanted to ask you was at the level between the reference, the sense or the concept or the meaning in between. For a lot of history, people understood at some level what water meant, but they didn't know it was H2O. This is very useful as an example for uh, naturalistic moral realists like myself, because if you understand what's going on that way, you can understand why alchemists couldn't just consult the dictionary to get out of their errors. They had to do some actual experiments and discover something to do this properly. So if we make it something that is at the level of sense or meaning or concepts analyzable where you can figure out the truth, there arises this question of why didn't we figure out the moral truth earlier? Why are so many people mistaken if you can just analyze the concept and figure out the normative ethical truths? And this was the problem that G.E. Moore posed to all the utilitarians before him, Bentham and Mill and so on. And we've been doing 120 years of metaethics since then trying to deal with this. My way of dealing with it is that what the concept wrong is to be analyzed as is action to be displeased about. And then even the person who rejects hedonic utilitarianism isn't making a conceptual mistake. They aren't doing something where they can just look it up in the dictionary or analyze their concept better and find the truth. They're doing something, well, they're in a situation like the alchemist. There's something big that has to happen. And it's not just going to be reflecting on your concepts. It's not just going to be uh, consulting the dictionary to find the answer. Now, there's people like Frank Jackson who say, really, analyzing your concepts is very hard. So it could be that we have to do some really hard conceptual analysis. And maybe there's a way that some fan of Jackson can flip my view over cleverly into that, but I don't see it yet. As I see it, we aren't going to get there on conceptual analysis alone. And so you can't put hedonic utilitarianism into the content of the concept. If you do, you're going to just give an implausible account of this content of the concepts. It's going to be, why didn't people figure this out before? If it's all there, oh my 
a sister is a female sibling or something like that, or a square is a four-sided figure where all the sides are equal in length. Why couldn't people figure it out? And this is the problem that pushed utilitarianism into abeyance for the first half of the 20th century, as far as I can tell. It was still around. People still liked the view, but they went on cognivist or did something funny that was just off in a different direction. And then in the second half, people came up with other solutions to these problems and just ran off to other views. And now utilitarianism is basically nowhere uh, except for a bunch of effective altruists who bring it back. And that's the practical side where it is. I'm trying to give you a theory that will solve Moore's problems and get, get us all the way back. And the way to do that is understand the wrong misjudgment, not as something that entails in the conceptual side, but it's just, okay, there's an action to feel displeased about. And that's compatible with you should be displeased about lies because they're lies and nothing more. And a non-naturalist can still hold that on my view. That's still a conceptual possibility. You know why you should be displeased about lies? Because there's a non-natural property of wrongness attached to the lie. That's a conceptually possible view in the way that the alchemists view. It's something new, but there's no contradiction in it. The alchemist who thinks there's just earth, water, fire, and air, and this stuff is a simple substance. That alchemist is not falling into contradiction. It's just an empirical mistake. And that's how I want to see all the other normative ethicists who are just wrong, but not contradictory. They're just making that kind of mistake. What you've got to do is figure out what to do with that. This is the thing to be displeased about judgment. And that requires a little bit of empirical information. Now, this is extremely interesting. And I, I'm not, I don't have a firm judgment about who's right here. If it's so simple that it's just relating to concepts, why didn't Plato figure this out <laughs> 2,000 years ago? Yeah, I believe that we are very easily confused about the associations we make between pleasurable experiences and the value we can project onto objects or institutions or people. So for example, if I have a religious experience, I might project some intrinsic goodness into the religious figures that I'm wor worshiping, whereas it is actually my pleasure that's good. So I see this as a series of very easy to make uh, mistakes about projecting value out to the out into the world as opposed to finding it in your experience. But maybe this talk about Moore's open question argument and analytic versus synthetic naturalism it's getting very uh, nerdy and very philosophical, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Yeah, and let me say, you, the way you're doing it is the way Sharon does it. And I think there's exactly. a possibility that somebody could show me that really my way is a path to your way. And if that can be shown, there's a way to do it where you say, really, in, you know, in what I've told you, there's a way to build it all the way out where all the arguments I've given for this being hedonism synthetically, a lot of that stuff is actually analytic rather than synthetic. But it was just so weird that nobody got all the way down to it. Maybe you could do that. And that's the way to flip me over into being an analytic naturalist like you and show you all that. We should talk about reductionism because what we, we both want to do is to reduce ethical value to something that's discovered empirically. And to, yeah, I have this call it. <laughs> mistaken youthful ambition that morality could be a, a, a science. And uh, I think you agree. And so do you agree that if we are to, to fully naturalize ethics, we must 
be physicalists about our experiences. We must accept that in the end, conscious experiences are physical states or brain states. I'm neutral right now on the physicalism, non-physicalism question. One of the reasons why is it's just really hard for me to understand exactly what physical means. If you define it in terms of contemporary physics, then I'm pretty doubtful that the stuff of contemporary physics gives you a full reductive treatment of consciousness. If somebody has a great reduction, I know that there's a integrated information theorists and other types of people who are offering reductions of various kinds, but from what I've seen, I, I would need to know a lot more to wade into those, but the smart people who have tried, who have read the stuff of, uh, left me feeling pessimistic about whether I'd find it there. So my guess right now is with current science all the way up and down, we just don't have the stuff to build the reduction. There's, a, there's an explanatory gap still remaining. Now, I'm not a pessimist about closing that explanatory gap at some point. And uh, David Papineau, a philosopher who, on one of the Phil Papers surveys, I just match totally with like David Papineau, who's a physicalist about the mind. He has an argument that really physicalism does really well. You should expect some kind of physicalism to win in the end. And I'm like, okay, David, I can go that way. And I'll just go provisionally with you that way. What I am confident about that is very close to physicalism is that consciousness is within space-time. This has been proven. Bertrand Russell proved this in the 1920s. It's a consequence of special relativity. Basically, according to special relativity, if something is in time, it has to be in space because of the unified nature of space-time. And qualia are in time. Consciousness unfolds in time. You have a conscious experience at one time, and then it goes away, and then there's another one. Now, I have an argument. I'm, I'm preparing this. It's writing this up is a bit hard. Uh, but I've managed to make Russell's update or Russell's conclusion from special relativity a bit more precise. And I think I can figure out where consciousness is. It has a spatial location. Well, mine is right here and yours is in your head. Uh, because if you do the Einstein train things, if you've seen these with uh, special relativity, the way he illustrates them, there's an argument I'm developing that if you basically do the Einstein train thing and have the train run between two people having qualia, the timing situation, you can see how it works, and you would get completely bonkers results that special relativity says you won't get if consciousness is anywhere else but in the head. You would get, in some frames of reference, if you're moving fast enough towards somebody, their conscious experience could happen before their brain state happens, if it's a different location. It's just a bizarre thing that special relativity says, that is not going to happen. And maybe you can make it on like Leibniz's occasionalism or something really bizarre like that. Even then it would just be, it would just be strange. Consciousness is here within space-time. We should invoke it in our scientific theories without fear. It's just another thing for which we don't have a full reduction yet. But there's plenty of those because reducing things is hard. So let's just accept it's here. Maybe worst case scenario, we have to invoke some new fundamental forces to deal with it. But if the thing is in space-time and is in a convenient location in space-time near what it causes, it's not going to cause the disruptions to science that people worry about. Maybe we need new fundamental forces, one or two of them, to deal with this. So it doesn't disrupt the causal order. It's just pure data at some level. Some data showed up that was unusually ontologically robust. But you don't use Occam's razor on data. That's monstrous. <laughs> don't cut up the data. Don't simplify the data. Oh, you know what you can do then? Best thing to do is to cut away all the data. Then you can be so simple in your ontology, you'll have nothing.
Of course we don't do that. We don't accept there is nothing. That's what you would do if you Occam's razor the data. If consciousness is at some level appearing in our theories, in some of them as data, which it will, it's not the only datum, but it is a thing that appears in some theories as data. In my own psychology, it's basically like, I had this experience. Why did this happen? That's a question I could ask. It's showing up as data there. Don't Occam's razor it. Keep it in. Accept that it's there. And now build it into your theory of the world. Whether it's reducible to what we have on the table right now or not, we don't know. But it's in space-time. It's causally structured like things that play nice. Just accept that consciousness is there, that qualia are there. They're in space-time. They're wired up to everything else nicely. They don't necessarily cause anything, so don't worry about them messing up other sciences. The other sciences can proceed just fine. You just have all this other stuff that happens to be there. And really, it was only the behaviorists who started raising a giant hue and cry about this stuff. And I've actually looked into the history of this. The behaviorists, as far as I can tell, Carl Lashley is doing the devil's work here. He is actually harming science in a really terrible way. He says in the early 1920s, there's a debate between the psychologists. There's this guy, Fernberger, this other psychologist who says, you know what we need to do? We need to split up psychology. We'll have you behaviorists, you get your thing. You get your own science of causing behavior. And we're also going to have the science of consciousness where we figure out like, why are conscious experiences happening? Let's figure out what their physical structure is, and it's okay if they're epiphenomenal for that science, and that's what keeps peace between the two sciences. So you behaviorists, you figure out what causes behavior, and maybe all this stuff is epiphenomenal, and you never have to deal with it. But we'll have some conscious people on the side de dealing with that. Lashley comes in, and he says, we are not even allowing a science of consciousness. Nobody has the right to collect data on this, and here's the deep reason why. We behaviorists want to be physicalists, and there can be data there that disrupts physicalism don't collect it. And this is just terrible. Because the kind of physicalism I like is the valiant heroic physicalism that finds all the data and explains it and takes the risk that maybe we can't explain it with the stuff we have and maybe we need more stuff. Go out there and be a heroic physicalist and try your best to explain the difficult things. And maybe it turns out some of them are illusions. Okay, that'll come up as we look at the data and we find out it's badly collected. But go and find stuff and explain it. Don't run away and then say, we're not going to collect this. You just lose a science of consciousness that you could have had, that Fernberger wanted to have. And I think Fernberger was right in this debate. There's a science that's missing here, a science of consciousness. And we need to go back to people like Russell and Einstein who would tell us the qualia have to be in space-time. And then we can rebuild the science of consciousness where it's been just this missing patch in our set of sciences for a century now because of Lashley's scientific crime. I, I think that we have to reduce rather than eliminate consciousness if we are to move forward. And I think there's a, there's a, there's, there could be a lot of interesting discoveries about consciousness because it's so close to what we're doing and because it's so valuable for us. We are missing a lot if we're not taking consciousness seriously as, as a, an object to be investigated. Absolutely. And I think hedonic utilitarianism in particular has suffered from this. Because if the value stuff of hedonic utilitarianism becomes ontologically questionable, because it's within consciousness, we don't know what that stuff is. Nobody's really sure how to deal with it. The sciences can't touch it. This stuff exists in an ontological gray zone where respectable people aren't willing to engage with it. 
and only unrespectable people are allowed to engage with it. People who are scientific renegades and philosophers who don't <laughs> have to always obey scientific rules. So yeah, that's just what's over there. And you just get bad theories then. But if Fernberger had won, I think we would have some great stuff going on right now. Consciousness wouldn't be an area full of philosophers and people who don't really like science that much. <laughs> and, and there are scientists. People do research on the neural correlates of consciousness. But that is so much smaller than I think it should be. And that it would be if Fernberger, rather than Lashley, had won the debate 100 years ago. But I don't really know why Lashley won. It's a mystery to me. Fernberger totally seems to be right. And there are people on his side uh, who are pushing for that. But Behaviorism won, and the damage it did with Occam's razor lasts to the present day. What I hear glimpses of in what you're saying is this view of philosophy as a, you could call it a, a playground before something graduates to, to become a science. And so we're figuring out what the basics of a field, figuring out the basics of a field, figuring out what we're even investigating, and when something has been investigated in this way, then it can move on and we can make a science of, out, of, out of it. Is that how you see things? Very much so, very much. Your playground metaphor is one I'll have to consider. The metaphor <laughs> I have been uh, thinking of is the mother of the sciences, because that's where all this came from. If you look back at what Newton calls his book, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. If you look what John Dalton calls the book, where he comes up with atomic theory. I just love this title, A New System of Chemical Philosophy. I, imagine if it were still called the Chemical Philosophy Department. My dad got his PhD in chemistry. He was a synthetic organic chemist. It, it, chemical philosophy. Can you imagine how many grants we philosophers would get if they were still calling it chemical philosophy? They didn't give us grants and say, make a new chemistry for us, please. Can you make another one of those? Because that turned out really well. From what I understand, this is something that went wrong in the 1830s, actually. The 1830s, from what I've heard, is the time when science gets something like its modern meaning that excludes things like philosophy and that includes something like what we think of the sciences of today. Before that, to be a scientist, you'd be a natural philosopher. And this was one of the areas within which sciences were growing as the playground, as you have it. Some were playing around there. And I guess the ones that had made it off the playground became sciences. And then no one remembers that they were back on that playground before. But you see it in the titles of the books. New system of chemical philosophy, mathematical principles of natural philosophy. And here we find the foundations of two of our most successful scientific disciplines, probably the two most significant books in them are the one with atomic theory and the one Newton wrote. So really, we philosophers need to reclaim that, realize that this is what we do that contributes in a giant way to progress of human thought, and then be like, yeah, we're doing Newton and Dalton stuff. Give us some grants. There is this project that I like of trying to make morality into a science. And this seems to have fallen into disregard in, in philosophy. It seems to be regarded as naive or simplistic in a way, or may maybe it's a hope that can never be realized because we have discovered something about morality that, that makes it so it can never be a science. I'll try to explain what I mean here. When I say morality as a science, I mean that we're trying to use all the disciplines we know of. We're trying to use physics, biology, the brain sciences, the social sciences, economics, everything we know to 
informed this giant project of maximizing the good in the world. I would like morality, a science of morality, to be a, a unifying justification for what we're doing in all of the sciences, what projects we're researching. It's a prioritization scheme for what we should uh, investigate. Do you feel that there are great arguments or is it, is it more of a, a kind of a zeitgeist that is against morality as a science currently? Yeah, I'll go with the temporary zeitgeist account of why people are opposed to this. And I'll, I think there is one kind of good reason why people are opposed to this, which is that a lot of people have done it badly. Attempts to turn morality into a science generally, or a lot of them just, yeah, we're not good. But yeah, there have been just a lot of things that didn't work. Really, a lot of them did not take metaethics seriously. And I think that solving certain metaethical puzzles is really what you have to do. You don't have to solve all the puzzles because some of the puzzles you have to show are misguided in some ways. And anything that requires uh, uh, categorical reasons for action or universal reasons for action, I want to say this isn't a puzzle we should even go into. Rather, what we're looking for here is accuracy conditions for feeling or how we should feel, how to feel. That's the correct way to understand this. I'll try to do that at the conceptual level first. And then once we've got into that, I'm like, okay, I can give you a broadly scientific story about how these work once we're looking for those. So I think there are two ideas that you had there that I agree with both of. One of them is using all the sciences to figure out morality. And the other is using morality, once we figured it out, to prioritize what we do in the sciences. So on the first one, using all the sciences to figure out morality, that's really what my treatment of philosophy as the mother of them all amounts to. It's basically philosophy saying, okay, kids, all of you help the new baby. So, uh, right, of course, that's what's going to happen. And as you figure out more things, you have more little helpers to help out the new babies. I, I wish motherhood take, took this shape more often. I, as I understand it, kids more often just try to cause trouble for the new baby. Set that aside. We have very nice kids, very good sciences, and, and we can trust them to give us good results. Psychology, we've had some problems with the replication crisis. That's true. But Einstein, I trust Einstein to tell me what's the shape of the world, the shape of the universe is. He figured that out. And really, we have managed to verify what he told us in some pretty amazing ways. Cell phone GPS off of the theory of relativity, because the way that works requires his, his theory. We just have awesome theories and awesome results coming out of these theories. Let's trust them. Let's trust those theories to tell us this universe, we're in Einsteinian space-time. Uh, that's what this is. And one of the things you get when you get that, that really is, I think, meta-ethically important. There's some powerful anti-intuition stuff that Einstein got from Hume and that should inspire us in how we do meta-ethics today. Because Einstein himself, I think in a letter to Moritz Schlick of the Vienna Circle, I think it's to Schlick. Some years after, I think 10 years after, was it? After discovering relativity in 1905, Einstein writes, it was empiricism about the way concepts are structured. It's the way we get our concepts is from experience. So we get our concept of time from our experience of time. We get our concept of space from our experience of space. And if that's what it is, then the concept of time could work in something like the way Einstein says it does, where we get violations of the way that Kant says that things could work. You could get such things as time travel. It's, it's a conceptual possibility in certain systems, whereas in the Kantian system with uh, time proceeds in one direction, uh, uh, space has to be three-dimensional. 
well, that kind of structure with a Euclidean geometry to space, that's supposed to be within at least the pure, I don't know if it's conceptual, but you get the pure intuition. So it can be known a priori that a space is Euclidean, for example, that can be known within the Kantian system. Within Hume's system, it's just hard to show how you could know that a priori. And Einstein's reading Hume and figuring out, okay, space being Euclidean is not a priori in this system. I'm, I'm going ways in which space isn't Euclidean. So that thing is something that Einstein, as far as we can tell, uh, finds in Hume, just concepts of space and time that are not the Kantian ones. What this shows is that you can be very confident in Kantian intuitive structures to tell you what important things like space and time and right and wrong are. And Kant is going to tell you this is fundamentally related to action. We're looking for universal laws. And the way the uh, categorical imperative works, it, it's supposed to be running on universal maxims that have a fundamentally action-directed structure. Could you will these things together? It's very important to the structure of Kant's theory that this is about action. And it's very important to the contemporary Kantians, to Christine Korsgaard, that this is coming up in reflection about what to do. Practical reason is where morality's natural home is. What I want to do here is a very Einstein-like move, a very Hume-driven move. What I'm looking at is the structure of our moral concepts. How are they actually built? And what Einstein had to go on here was some empirical data drove him uh, measurements of the speed of light. And those pushed him to seeing time and space in a very different way than Kant did. The gay conversion therapy example could be my empirical data. It shows us but the practical output is just not showing up. So let's move this to a more representational, perceptual way of looking at our feelings. Once we look at the concepts that way and go away from the way Kant wanted us to treat morality in terms fundamentally of action, once we look at this in terms of feeling, once we look at it in the more copy principle and empiricism way that Hume understood our concepts, once we build up that way, I'm just doing Humean copy principle empiricism on feelings. A feeling comes in, the concept you build has some essential connection to that feeling that came in. It's that feeling and you add a should onto it as well. There's something normative there. I, I want to account for that. Okay, uh, feeling and should, that's how you get a moral concept. And, and you can strip down feeling even further to the pleasure and displeasure that's in it. So I'm building up the concept Hume's way that's how Einstein discovered the shape of the universe. <laughs> Let's do this again. Let's do it again and see if we discover. And maybe there's Einstein-sized stuff at the end of this. So that's what I want to do. So now here we are using the sciences, just like you're saying, Gus, figure out morality. And then once we figure out, okay, this is what the good is, then we can investigate the sciences that are the most helpful in pursuing the good. Maybe we can build Something like, you know, we have the good. Now, let's do political science with the good in hand. We know pleasure is the good. Okay, let's assume this confidently in political science and do the all-out utilitarian political science that Bentham would have dreamed of. It's there for us now. Great. In, in general, you're very inspired by Hume in your account of human motivation. So could you briefly explain the Humean theory of of motivation for us. Yeah, it's something that I was going into a little bit earlier with the way that a moral judgment works, right? So yeah. the idea of the Humean theory of motivation is desire drives everything we do in terms of choosing 
the goals of action. So it uh, motivates all of our actions. Whenever you act, you have a desire for some outcome, some end. And you have a belief that by taking the action, you can produce the outcome or the end. And often taking the action has a bunch of steps between the action and the end. And you have some belief about what those steps are. By pouring uh, this water into this glass, I can quench my thirst. And there's a couple other steps involving doing things like this. But the end is quenching my thirst, drinking the water, something like that. And I do some things as means to that end. Uh, what the Humean theory is trying to rule out is something where I have a belief about what's good or right. And that belief plays the kind of role I assigned to desire in that explanation. The belief about what's good or right says this outcome is good or this action is right. And that either drives actions that I believe will produce that outcome or makes me do that action if the action itself is right. So Hume is arguing against views where belief, or as he put it, reason can motivate us. And the way I defend the Humean theory, I don't just think it's about, okay, we can't have reason immediately driving the action. I think also you need to put on this, and this is where I disagree with Michael Smith, who calls himself a Humean. I think the belief cannot generate a desire through reasoning from beliefs alone. You can't have a bunch of beliefs and reason from your beliefs and end up with a desire. I think you can imagine creatures that can do that. I don't think that the psychology Michael Smith suggests where beliefs about a reason to do something or moral beliefs generate desires is like impossible as a psychology. But you can imagine they, they could be really psychologically powerful creatures. They would think, uh, I ought to work harder. I have a reason to work harder. And they'd form a desire to work harder. And they would get more work done than me. But Really, we aren't like that. And the gay conversion therapy case is really what I think shows it. Imagine I go to a philosophy seminar uh, with, uh, with Peter Singer, and he convinces me through reason that factory farming is morally abhorrent. Isn't that a case in which if I then stop eating meat, I am directly motivated by my recent beliefs as opposed to my science. We have to get into your head as you've listened to Peter Singer and figure out what exactly yeah. happened. And really, this needs to be treated with a great deal of psychological depth. We need to really explore how this is going on, how moral persuasion happens. Now, the cases of moral persuasion that I was seeing anti-humians offer in the philosophical literature when I looked at these, they were just leaving details in to make them true to life. But when I look closely at those details, it's like, why is that detail there if it's all belief? So I'll give you an example. There's a, a case that Stephen Darwall has where this woman watches a, a film about workers being treated badly in a, a cotton mill or something in the southern United States. And then that experience gets her to become an activist, trying to work for better conditions for the workers. Okay. If you take that process, so she uh, sees the film, becomes an activist and does that, it seems to me like your Peter Singer case. Uh, she gets information and acts on the basis of information. Sounds pretty reason-based. But one of the details that Darwall leaves in is that this woman, Roberta, feels an experience of shock and horror as she sees how the worker is being treated. And now there's this question, why does she have that emotional response. Why are shock and horror showing up at a time when we would think she hasn't yet formed 
the decision to go there. Now you can put the decision oddly early and say, oh, she had really decided early. Someone can be, I think, a natural way to see the case. And the way Dorwall presents it is people are just shocked and horrified by this. And they feel that first. And then they decide what to do. And even after that, they're shocked and horrified. And then they decide something must be done. You can be shocked even before you decide something must be done. Even before you draw any practical inferences relating to action. You can just watch. It, it can be almost the way you'd watch a fictional, like, film where something really bad happens to somebody and you feel bad for that person, though there's nothing you can do because obviously it's a fiction. You can watch the documentary that way, feel that, and then later on think, can I do anything for those people? Oh, there might be something. So that's a way, that's the way Darwall presents this. And now we're trying to explain those feelings. A thing about belief is that belief on its own does not generate horror, as far as I can tell. To be horrified, you need something like a desire first for the thing not to happen. So if when Peter Singer tells you about what's bad in factory farms, if you have an unpleasant experience as you think about what's happening to the animals, which I think is how it usually is for people, and that's why our EA veggie vegan friends try very often to give you cuddly animal pictures, especially when they're talking to ordinary people who are uh, not philosophers. The way it ordinarily works is you give people that. Now, maybe if people are primed up in a very complex way that philosophers often get, or if they're the kinds of unusual people who become philosophers or who become EAs. I know that within our EA community, we have some people who are, you know, just a little bit different from uh, the rest of the folks, and maybe they have something special going on where you have to talk to them in a special way. I don't know. But with ordinary people, you give them cuddly animal pictures to get them to donate to global poverty causes, you give them the, the kids in Africa and India, and you make them cute. As far as I can tell, this is not a belief-driven process. This is a looking a lot more like processes that manipulate and enlist the help of desire. So you had some desires first, and what usually goes on in this persuasion is they're reaching into your desires and grabbing something. Now, I don't think this has to necessarily undermine the rationality of the persuasion. It may be that the images are actually undoing something irrational you were stuck in beforehand. It was just that you were, what was much more vivid to you was the luxury goods you could buy. And these images of the animals or the kids raise vividness of the other thing so that now you can make a decision from equal vividness, which is better. So this is not to say that something irrational is going on there, but that it psychologically might be engaging with things that are on the motivation desire side in a way that's much more human than a way where I get convinced first and the beliefs drive my action from then on. There's a guy named Josh May, who I think is the best anti-human out there. He has a book called Regard for Reason in the Moral Mind. I am not happy with a lot of anti-humians who just do a slipshod attempt at best to engage with the empirical work, but he really tries. And one thing that I think we've come to, we've come to a sort of agreement on, or, or quasi-agreement as far as I can tell, obviously he has his position, I have mine. But as far as I see it, I want to go along with him on the idea that rational persuasion is much more frequent than, say, Jonathan Haidt or Josh Green or people like that were suggesting. Yeah, we can be rationally persuaded, and it happens. Of moral things, uh, this really does happen. However that happens, I want to say, with an underlying strongly human psychology where desire drives all action. And when we act morally, that's going to be at some deep level desire-driven too. But that's okay. That doesn't undermine the rationality of 
things in general, just understand rationality more the way Hume would. We're going to be good rational Humeans about this and form our judgments the way Einstein did. Simplest explanation of the data. That's the way you do it. Take in the experience, build the simplest explanation. Einstein says that's the supreme goal of all theory. And that is the rational process. That scientific rational process is the one that leads us to the moral truth. There's this problem of feeling alienated from our own values. There's a problem of this feeling of alienation from our own values, especially among utilitarians or effective altruists, especially if you have this system that, that places high demands on you. Our values can feel distant. We can feel like we're being almost oppressed by what we have to do, what we should do. And do you, do you have any, any advice for dealing with this? It may be too late for many who feel that conflict because that problem, I do think just is something that happens. It comes up from within your desires at a certain level. Now, suppose you were an utterly pure of heart utilitarian. You believe the theory and all your desires and emotions are in line with the theory. I don't think we have many people like that. Psychologically, it's hard for a human being to do, be, be that way. I think we can make ourselves slowly more and more that way. And it's really good for some people to do that. Maybe not everybody who knows that everybody should, but I want some ninjas. I want some utterly single-minded, pure utilitarians who will just go around the world and end all the existential risks. And we have some of those people and they will save us from monsters. So yeah, you can try to build yourself up that way. It's hard, but people can try to do it over time. People who come into the theory young have an easier time of this because they can over time set themselves up psychologically and take courses in life where disruptions don't happen. I've been lucky that way. Coming into philosophy, you know, and as a utilitarian, this is what I did. I was an undergraduate. I was 18 years old, a freshman at Harvard. And I was, it, it occurred to me that this phenomenal introspection way of figuring out that pleasure was good, that was, yeah, that has to be the way you do it. And it was just like the same way that a, a young chess player will be like, I have checkmate here. I know there's mate in maybe seven or something like that, but I have it. And you just throw all the pieces at it. And everyone thinks that's crazy. Why are you throwing all your pieces away? And now... I'm 41 and uh, I've thrown a lot of pieces at this and I'm like, now it's not mate in seven, it's mate in three. And I think I've got this. It's just coming closer and closer. That's how this goes. And then if you do it that way, you have time to build up your life in such a way that you don't get all the contrary things that would pull you away from the theory. If you have children, you're going to have this, you know, kind of conflict between caring for one or a few, your children. And then this theory that you accept that tells you to do something else. And that conflict is just really hard to resolve in your own life because you love your children. Utilitarians who have kids, they really do have to figure out how they're going to do this. And I wish them the best. My, my situation is easier. I don't have kids. I can, you know, be pretty single-minded, pretty focused. And I've had plenty of time to try to build myself up as a person in a way that made me even more single-minded and focused. And yeah, you can do that. And that's really at bottom. If your motivations are separate, you will be alienated. You'll have a lot of motivations and you'll think about one motivation of yours that goes in a different direction. You'll have conflict. And that conflict, I think, just is a kind of alienation or an alienation emerges from it that I can't tell you how to get away from if you feel it. Christine Korsgaard in Sources of Normativity has this idea that uh, rational deliberation could unify you. If your desires are not unified, there's a way that you could rationally be like, 
I have settled on this, and then everything falls back together. And I don't think that actually works. I don't think that human beings can do that. They can do it in some situations where they find a solution and they bring the things together in some real resolution between them. They find a way to pursue everything just about enough and they're happy. But there's times when there's nothing rational deliberation can do and you're going to lose a part of yourself and it's always going to be screaming at you for not following it. If you have children or something and it's a choice between the utilitarian path and you really believe utilitarianism is the right moral theory and your children, if, if, the more severe that becomes, the more ugh, bad it could be. And I don't think there's, there's necessarily a way out for people who, if, if that really becomes a, a dilemma. This is a tricky issue, the issue of having children as a utilitarian. I, I would worry about what I consider some of the most ethical people on earth choosing not to have children. And then maybe they're not getting, they're not furthering these values or I am skeptical about the case against having children, mm -hmm. I must say. We should talk about that because I have the, it's just fine for utilitarians to uh, not procreate kind of thing. Because I think our most effective way to make people better is not through the incredibly expensive and difficult process of raising them ourselves. The grow your own approach is, it just doesn't scale and we need things that scale. So the better way to do it is the way that Peter Singer actually made a lot of utilitarians. He didn't do it by giving, by impregnating somebody who gave birth to them. He wrote a bunch of books and I'm doing that. I think we can do it that way successfully. We just go out and make good arguments. And really, if there were, if the problem was there were a lot of great arguments out there, the theory is, has been decisively argued for, we just need to breed some people who will believe it. <laughs> That'd be a different situation. A lot of the things we have to do, we have to just do those things. And then maybe once those are done, there will be time to do this. But we just have so many things to do first. And I really think that the grow your own approach is inefficient. It doesn't scale. It's not going to be a good way to throw our resources at things. A better way would be, I think we'd do a lot better if we go to the communities that we're helping with our global poverty aid and just be like, hey, by the way, this is us in our theory that's been you know, distributing the, the deworming pills, the bed nets here. If you're interested, we could build some education on top of this for you and uh, pipe you into our system as future utilitarians who have been helped. I really look forward to those people. I want to see the future utilitarians who came up from, yeah, I'm here because of the bed net. Yeah. Hello. It's an absolutely beautiful thought to think of a, a, a future effective altruist that was once saved by the efforts of effective altruists. Yeah. They yeah. are coming. I promise you, they are on the way. Yeah. I'm in that quasi position myself because goodness knows if I'd be here, if not for a piece of American foreign aid. My parents come from a tiny village in rural India. And there was some grain assistance at a certain point, I think during the 60s or 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, there were various crises in the part of India. Some of this is Peter Singerish stuff because we're in West Bengal, which is close to Bangladesh. So I, I speak the same language as the Bangladeshis that uh, Peter Singer is telling everyone to help. So you got the same blood here and maybe someone aid helped, though it wasn't specifically utilitarians. But uh, my dad was telling me sacks of grain at one point came in with the American flag on them and he learned to love America partly from, hey, these are the people who feed you when you're hungry. That's great. That's awesome ways to buy goodwill internationally for a sack of grain. You get my dad on your side and he comes to the U.S. and becomes a pharmaceutical chemist? Wonderful. EAs can do this. And I think that's going to be so sweet when people like my dad start showing up. With regards to the, the point about children, I agree that it's, that it's more, more effective to convince people than to create people. 
I would worry about the marketing of effectualism or utilitarianism if it's widely known that to join this community, you must abstain from having children. I think this eliminates a, a broad chunk of the population. Given the choice between accepting these values or having children, then the values will be rejected because if something is an innate drive, it's the, the desire to have children. Right. Yeah, I, I see that. And once the movement gets big enough, obviously, you, know, you just can't like, this couldn't be a requirement. I would never want it to be a requirement on people in the movement or something like that. That's just, <laughs> that just loses people pointlessly. What I do think is you know, when I talked about ninjas, not everybody who's doing the good has to be a ninja, but some people think it would be awesome to become a ninja. The whole idea of it is that you need special people to do these jobs. And right now, the jobs that utilitarians need done, there's some select jobs to prevent existential risk. You need to deal with biotechnology policy so that we don't get even worse pandemics than we have now that actually can kill the entire human race, which you could get if someone gets their own, des you know, design your own virus kit and decides to design them most nasty virus that they ever could. Well, let's take COVID and build in some more nasty stuff into the RNA that'll totally smash anybody it goes into. Yeah, so make sure that nobody does that. So we have people, I've met some people who are trying to do this, get into the right places in governments to just shut down the design your own humanity destroying virus. Let's just get that kit to never happen. And there are people working on the project of making sure it never happens. So those are the people. So once you build up your hero teams, so there's going to be a supporting infrastructure in any proper society that can support this of ordinary people going about their ordinary lives and occasionally meeting one of your heroes and uh, being like, oh, thanks, hero, for helping out. And the hero's like, hey, glad to help. And just rushes off spending his or her uh, or their entire life doing this kind of task. That's in the end where we want to go, but we just need some people right now. There'll be room for all types once we build this up. I don't think in the end, this is something that just becomes nobody has children. It's just while we're trying to, while we have a small number of people to work with, we do it this way. Hey, if you want to come in at a different level, and there's some people, I think Jeff Kaufman and Julia Wise, who are EAs, who are doing a good job of just showing you. And they, I think, have their own sort of giant useful mission, showing you how to live the EA life from the parent perspective, to show you that it can be done. The question of integrating our moral philosophy into our lives is maybe the most important because uh, otherwise what we're doing when we're discussing metaethics is just... You could call it a form of uh, live action role playing if, if, if we're not actually <laughs> implementing it, it into our action. So uh, how do you think about the importance of community here? Because this is, this seems to me to be one of the really important motivators for humans or for people to be a part of a community with some uh, values in common. Right, right. Um, so. I don't have a general answer to the question of community because how to develop that community obviously depends on uh, what your initial situation is, where you need to go from there. And in some places, the EA community functions as a community. And when I go to the Bay Area, when I see some of my friends in the Oxford area, it's almost like a small religious community in some ways. And those do succeed sometimes and they just have to figure out how to do it and do their thing. Yeah, so there's that. And you can build that, you can do that. And we're going to need communities of other kinds too. We're going to need EAs integrated into larger communities of non-EAs because very often that's how it has to be. And so we'll just get all kinds of solutions to these problems as people think about it in their specific situation. But on the community 
and is metaethics just LARPing kinds of issues? Look, I think the way that a lot of people do metaethics, it might just be. I can't answer for the field in general. But the way I came to it, it did come up from something that was very embedded in the world. The reason that I got so worried about these questions about can we scientifically prove that something is right and wrong or good and evil was that I came up against one somewhat genocide-ish guy in my upbringing. That's Senator Jesse Helms from North Carolina, who was the senator of the state I lived in from age eight all the way to end of uh, college when I, you know, I'd come back from college to where my parents lived in North Carolina. Here's the genocide-like thing that he accepted. He was, he was pretty sanguine about AIDS, about the AIDS crisis, because it killed gay people. That was something Jesse Helms really did not mind. He just saw the end of them as something to be wanted. And that view, if it's not full-on genocide, is in that direction. It's, there's an entire population that he just wants to see die. And it's not like, he, I don't think he'd go to actually acting for this, but hey, if God's taking care of it, why interfere with the hand of the Lord? This is the, the attitude that I was seeing from him. And yeah, this stuff is out there. He was pushing against funding to deal with the disease for a very long time, throughout the 90s. It's just, at some point he flipped over a little bit on it, would allow it, but that was way long into the pandemic and just people had died in large numbers while he was blocking funding. So we had that, he, he was just racially terrible. He was, a, he was a segregationist from the Martin Luther King days and had disliked Martin Luther King's attempts to establish integration in the South. So like racial hatred was just deep in this guy. And I saw him defeat a black guy who had been the mayor of the biggest city in the state, a highly respected former architect, twice in Senate races in 1990 and 1996. I was 10 and 16 years old at that time. And that was my introduction to the fact that yeah, evil is afoot here and people love it. People think it's right. People think it's the objective moral truth. And we see them now in the South again with certain kinds of views that could lead America to cease being a democracy if they succeed at what they're doing. So this might be a good point or point of time to, to remind ourselves of the dangers of having a community with shared values. If these values are wrong, Exactly. It can be extremely motivating for people in both, whether or not the values are, are right, it can be yeah, deeply motivating for people. So if your religious community teaches you about the, the dangers of homosexuality, then you might be extremely motivated to do something about it. And, and this is, of course, something that effective altruists have to look out for to avoiding dogmatism, I would say, is, is, should be a main focus, remaining open to criticism. I, I do think that the movement gets, like, dogmatists are more likely to be loud about their dogmatism than non-dogmatists are to be loud about their non-dogmatism. So when you look at discourse, you naturally will overestimate the amount of dogmatism. And I'm, I'm pretty, I'm happy with the community. I think there's enough going on that will have a, a bunch of people who can, and the community is diverse and it's all over the place. These, there's the Bay Area people, the Oxford people, a bunch of scattered people. We have chapters in Singapore and Hong Kong that I've seen. And, and there's a bunch of different perspectives that come from their different local environments. So I feel like the community is being, it's becoming a network of different opinions that will prevent all that bad, we're in this community and we have one view stuff from going on. You're a member of Giving What We Can. What is this? How did you make the choice to become a member? How, how has your experience of being a member uh, been? 
Yeah. There, it was about 10 years ago. I was already a utilitarian and this philosopher named uh, Rachel Brown at Australia. She's in Australia. She's, I think, teaching at Australian National University now told me, there's these people, uh, these effective altruists who are like you and they've started a, a thing and maybe you should uh, join them. And I looked at her, I was like, that's the kind of thing I'm going to be part of. And so I took the pledge and got in and there was just like, Hey, I'm a utilitarian and these people are being good utilitarians. Let me join them and, oh, they're going to find me some charities to donate to. Okay. Well, I have money now because I just had, you know, uh, gotten the job in Singapore in 2008 and I had thought to myself, I want to keep giving away a quarter of my money every year of my salary. And I've managed to pretty much stick to that between charitable and U.S. political causes. Basically, I try to hit the pledge over 10% on global poverty, stuff, global poverty and animals. And the rest of the quarter is usually U.S. politics. And yeah, that's that package. Uh, yeah, has a roughly, and I would say I always hit 25%, but I'm 20 to 25 is a pretty good estimate for me usually. And this hasn't been disruptive in your life. How, how has it been easy for you to stick to this? Really easy. I didn't really run on the hedonic treadmill very much. Uh, when I moved up from being a grad student to being uh, an assistant professor, I only made small moves. That's my advice to anybody who wants to be happy with just a little. Do it that way, and it'll work out. And if you're if you've got the if you've got the successful career going, just live beneath your means at every stage. And I've always lived like one uh, career rank below my means. So here I'm an associate professor who's bought some nice things and lives like an assistant professor. I feel it all right. Or maybe a postdoc even. I may even be two levels up. Yeah, just keep doing that and you can be happy. And not having kids was also, that's huge. When I realized just, okay, I'd thought about it. It's not like I'm personally opposed to the ideas, but I realized that to do that, either I or a woman I was in a relationship with would have to make huge career sacrifices in probably both of us. And I just didn't see how that was going to end up being something that I could count on happening in a good way. So really the thought was for myself, if somehow that falls into place, go for it, but don't expect it and just go at philosophy because you're doing well at that. And the relationship stuff, I can't keep confident about. Now things are going well and I have a little cat meowing here because a, a nice lady has dropped me a cat and she's here too. But we'll see what happens. Anyway, I, I, that's how I got to where I am now. And I've been, it's worked out easy for me because I was well set for it to be easy. Ever since I was 18, I did sort of one track let me do my do philosophy prove utilitarianism <laughs> some of that kind of stuff it was i was just on my own mission i was running out there with my katana blade hiding when i had to hide and slaying things when i need to slay things let's talk about how we should do politics if we are generally utilitarian or at least if we are effective altruists so one point to note and before we, we dig into this is to, is to say that EA or the, the effective altruist movement has, has stayed relatively apolitical, has tried to stay out of the most murky and most controversial matters. And I think this has been a good thing because the, we want this movement to be inclusive of people with different political views. We want it to be um, serious in a way that's not in the mud of the political issue of the day. And so there's that, and that, that's one thing. The other thing is just the importance of politics for all of the, uh, the things that effective altruists want to achieve. And so how do you think about the, the value of staying somewhat apolitical? So there is a lot of value in it that I see as strategic value, because, uh, once you are political, you have enemies. And being apolitical avoids enemies. So there's definitely a lot to be gained by that. It does keep the movement open 
to uh, lots of different people. And that's good because we just want more people doing the donate money to global poverty preventing causes type of thing. And if we get people of all different views, if we get libertarians doing it because they're like, this kind of charity is awesome. And they're, they have a special drive to show the power of private donation as opposed to government activity. Let them have their fun in the best possible way. I don't think that their ideas about how to set up society are any good. They can't build a sewer system because that requires government over the top in a way that I don't have never seen a libertarian theory that can deal with properly. But hey, look, we're not talking with them about that right now. We're talking about, with them about global poverty. And yeah, okay, go ahead, send the money and I'll send mine too and we'll shake hands. There are places where I think as far as actual goals, EA does want some things to happen. And the number one thing that I think EA would like to happen, the effective altruist movement would like, that would just be good for EA goals, is something that can globally prevent dangerous technology from killing us all. All the what would kill us all threats in some way involves, or most of them, I, I should say asteroids could knock us out, but for the most part, a whole bunch of the big ones are in the near term, we develop some technology and it smashes us. AI is an example. Pandemics normally, humanity has been through a lot of those, but if someone really manages to up the virus's game, if they get stronger with a distinctively intentional human help because somebody wants to kill everybody, that's dangerous. I especially worry, this is one of the things that has not so much come up. There's a version of AI risk, but military AIs are the scariest AIs to me because they are ones that are, they're not going to have the right safety things attached to them probably because they need to be built in secret or often they will be. It's a secret project to build like military technology. You don't want anyone else copying that. So there is, there, there might be too few eyes looking on this and they might be unsafe. They might have much closer and easier access to weapon systems. And if some country that, some North Korea-like country decides, okay, our ticket to power is building a military AI. And yeah, some really bad stuff could happen. Yeah, we should mention briefly why we should expect these risks of extinction to be human caused rather than something that arises from nature, like volcanic activity or asteroids. And in general, it's the, the reason is that we can look at how long humanity has survived so far. And then we can say that, uh, well, if we've, we've survived, let's say 200,000 years, the probability of natural extinction per year must be pretty low. The, the stuff that's about to change is the human generated risks, such as you mentioned, engineered pandemics, AI risk, maybe an, a great power war, a nuclear war, these things. This is what you suggest at, as the kind of common political project for effective altruists, whatever their kind of politics in the everyday political domain is. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. that is the project that I think the movement has rightly seized on. And people have their own assessments of which technology is the most dangerous one, but something along those lines is the big issue. I would add anything connected to a military to the uh, list of things because nuclear yeah. weapons were the classic one and those are still out there. Those are still all over the place. So I worry about those because you know, if an AI managed to hack its way into those or something like that, uh, that just gives it an easy way to cause the destruction. There might, if you just have these things around, uh, uh, it's a source of trouble. Yeah, there's just a lot of technological danger. What do you do about technological danger? For yeah. mitigating technological risks that could kill everybody, you need everybody who is in control of a dangerous technology 
to, well, be sensitive to the consequences of the risk. And the kind of actor who does kill everybody, I imagine, is a North Korea type actor who really feels like there is some risk of us dying too. But overall, in the grand strategic calculus, we are the people who will take a one in a hundred risk of absolutely everybody dies to get a one in a hundred everybody dies, 49% uh, chance the project goes nowhere, 50% chance we get a significant strategic advantage. I think North Korea goes for it then. And if you get, you can play that, if you play that game a hundred times, uh, the chances you know, are pretty good for the end of the world. Yeah, let's, you probably don't end up playing that game a hundred times. It probably, maybe time number 45, no more play. If a lot of people are playing that game, it's over. It could also be corporations trying to do something to maximize their profits that has a giant possible cost. But hey, look, if there's that kind of riches on the line, you'll take a one in a thousand chance of you dying. Yeah, so I don't want people taking risks on behalf of all of humanity that they personally profit from. And we have a way to stop collective action problems involving that. This is just what regulation and government are, are there for. If people are doing collect, are, are basically in collective action problems, you regulate your, this is how you build a sewer system. You basically, we're in a collective action problem because we're all creating waste that is infectious. We also all have to put our money together to build the pipes. And we, we, we deal with that. And now cities are livable. I actually found out before 1900, before about 1900, cities were net population losers because people would die to all the disease and all the filth and all the waste there. Jared Diamond just has this throwaway observation in Guns, Germs, and Steel about that. That, yeah, and then you build sanitation and now cities don't need to be replenished from the outside. So it's just an example. I tell my PPE students this about solve collective action problems with government. But now we have a collective action problem about keeping humanity alive. So how do we solve that? Get a universal regulator over the top of everything to make sure that nobody is making these gambles. One thing people worry about here with the universal regulator is, will the universal regulator be an authoritarian? That's a major worry that a lot of people have. There's so much fiction about evil people trying to control the world. We did have something that was like an empire that was trying to be the authoritarian world government a couple times in the past century. Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, USSR. There's a bunch of entities that were going for that. So yeah, those bad guys are, are out there. But one funny thing about those bad guys, here's why I just don't take that threat very seriously at all. I don't think authoritarian world government is a serious threat. It's because of the nuclear era. So try to imagine where the capital of your authoritarian world government is. Where is it going to be? Who is going to be in charge of this thing? China wants it. Russia wants theirs to be the capital. Various Western powers might want it, but how do they get everyone else to agree when everyone else has their own giant supply of world-ending nukes? It's really hard for anyone in a nuclear world to take over unless they're going to do some crazy gambles North Korea style. Okay, we'll keep those gamblers out of the game. Uh, we, we need to do that. But really nobody else, and we found this in the Cold War, the U.S. and the USSR could stare each other down for decades, and nobody's going to go at it with these nukes, and nobody's even going to conventionally invade each other. They do proxy wars. Uh, proxy wars are nasty, but they, they do some nasty proxy wars, tear up Africa, tear up Latin America, Southeast Asia. You got to be lucky and smart to get away from the proxy wars. It's just, yeah. But really, they don't invade each other's home territory. And they know that if they do that, there's going to be hell to pay. Nobody wants to do that and possibly trigger the end of the world. 
with all these nukes around. That dynamic is one that I think prevents anyone from becoming an authoritarian ruler who really imposes their will on others because all the others have nukes at this point, or enough of them do, that you just cannot get a, a unified authoritarian control of the world. And look at what the authoritarians will want. They're heavily nationalistic in general. It's Putin, it's Xi Jinping, it's a lot of them want their own power center. And if they're ethnic nationalist authoritarians, like Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin, they can't play well together. Russian nationalism rules the world and Chinese nationalism rules the world are two separate end games that you have to play out against each other. And they can have a cold war. That's probably what happened between them. The Axis powers probably would have a really grim cold war against each other in the end. Because why really do Hitler and Hirohito want to divide the world between themselves? They can make up fake racial theories that say, we are all one blood, Germans and Japanese. They have to do it for an alliance. And, and nonsense like that goes on when you have to do it for an alliance. But then the alliance goes away because really you want Munich or Tokyo, one or the other, not both. Some, at least some Japanese people were honorary Aryans in Hitler's race pseudoscience. Yeah, yeah. They have to build a pseudoscience with honorary Aryanship. Once you get a unified controlling Nazi Germany and a unified controlling Imperial Japan, if World War II plays out that way, I don't know if honorary being an Aryan is going to last very long. There's going to be some conflict eventually and it's not going to hold together. Nations can hold themselves in this kind of game theoretically stable situation in which there's mutually assured uh, destruction with nuclear weapons. If these governments are at least somewhat rational and, and not like uh, North Korea. Yeah. So the world, the world you're imagining, is it a world in which we get to a world government or is it a world in which there is a level above a nation states that kind of regulates the interactions between the nation states? Because if it's a world government, then I think you lose the advantage of nuclear weapons keeping everyone in, in check. Good, good. So let me show you how you get to the world government. So suppose you have your multiple empires scenario, and this is what I think plays out this century. So there's going to be a Chinese empire ruled in Beijing. There's going to be a Russian empire ruled in Moscow. And there's going to be a bunch of liberal democratic entities that play reasonably well with each other. Which ones they are, but things might flow in and out of that. We'll see whether America can stay a liberal democracy or if certain kinds of people take over there and decide we want to be strong ethnic nationalists. Really, America is the land of the white people and the white blood. What is this is a unified blood, but they'll do it that way. Something like that. If they do that, they can set up their own ethnic nationalist empire over there. Maybe in some way this becomes a bunch of racial empires with the Chinese one versus the Russo-American white one or something like, I don't know what kind of nonsense ends up being here. Russo-American holds together maybe better than Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan. But, but let's, have a, let's have a slightly better scenario. Some liberal democracy that includes America holds together. That's what I'm really playing for in US politics. And I think this is a point which some EAs, not the movement as a whole, because the movement, there's some reasons for the movement as a whole to stay nonpartisan and not make enemies, but they're individual EAs who are just like, look, we cannot have America fall into authoritarian ethnic nationalism. And I think that's absolutely right. You cannot have that if you're an EA, because it disrupts the path to resolving your international problems. If you have a bunch of empires, it's much easier for a North Korea or a corporation or an entity within one of those things. Maybe there's a secret project being brewed in Moscow or Beijing or in Washington or something like that where somebody's building something. 
And that goes nuts. Well, a lot of our Cold War doom scenarios, Dr. Strangelove is that kind of scenario. They've built something in secret and they haven't told anybody. And oops, the way that the thing goes blows everything up. Okay, so there's a lot of ways that that could play out. But suppose you have your multiple empires and you have a really robust liberal democratic community as well. I think what happens here is that liberal democracy wins. It has a winning endgame that no authoritarian empire has. Because if you're China, you got to sell the world on Chinese nationalism. And how are you going to sell Moscow on Chinese nationalism? How is this going to work? Cold War, they tried to do that. The Russians went down to Africa and they're like, Russian nationalism? And Africa's like, no. And on the other side, you have freedom, democracy, elections coming from the West. And some people in Africa like that. So you, you have to sell things in a way that is not headquartered in Moscow and Beijing if you want to have the world come along. And that's an advantage that liberal democracy has. Liberal democracy can make alliances internationally much more easily. Ethnic nationalists face an endgame that is really hard to win. But liberal democracy, if you get enough of us, here's what we do. We just say, okay, uh, you over there, authoritarian even, ethnic nationalist authoritarian, we have a plan for you. And this is my plan for any ethnic nationalist authoritarian. Suppose we end up with everybody's in except China. And China is running ethnic nationalist authoritarianism. They're the last one. We say, the last group of people there, okay, look, we're going to buy you out. Here's the deal. Look, you're up against us, and if we fight, it probably ends everything. You have nukes, we have nukes. That's no good. We can sit here as two separate empires and just stew and stare at each other, but uh, if we can't get a global framework, maybe North Korea pops up while we're not looking and just blasts us all, because little players, if we don't have a world government, can do that and get away with it. Here's what we do. All of you who are in power right now in China, you go like awesome constitutional monarchy. You get to party like celebrities and your descendants get to for as long as you can imagine having descendants. There is going to be just like, and then you get absorbed into wealthy tabloid celebrity have fun world. Go do that. And then those of you who really want to run things, just run businesses and stuff that fit within a unified global liberal democratic structure. So all the selfish players who just want to have fun, you guys go have fun. All those who want to run things, you can run things in the new system and you can actually run some better things because we'll let you into our system once you're playing by rules where everybody can play. And what's best of all, there is no North Korea-like entity that can kill us all. So now you can have security, you can have fun, you can have profit, you can have all the science and progress and dream of the happy world. You can have all of that. Just let's put these nukes away and make sure nobody builds them and nobody builds the design your own deadly humanity ending virus kit. So yeah, we'll do that on global democratic policy. We'll kill all the nukes. Paradise. So is the plan to present these kind of dictatorial world leaders and say that the, the top of, of the governments in, in China and Russia with a, a way to stay powerful and stay famous and stay rich without actually commandeering these nations in bad directions and in risky directions. Yes, that's the idea. That's the basic idea. That's the deal that I want the liberal democratic international community to offer these various authoritarian nationalist entities. And that's a deal that I think they might take in the end, if it's presented sweetly enough and built up to enough. And really, the other thing you need to do is make sure liberal democracy is powerful enough to really make that deal as a powerful player. So what I wanted EAs to do with our the goodwill we might have gotten in Africa and India with our local people is just go out there and just raise some kind of like happy pro-liberal democracy 
Africans and Indians where they are and just cultivate that, build that. And now we'll have leaders that are supportive of that kind of thing who maybe the EA community has taken lots of efforts to educate. Yeah, and just raise some leaders from over there. So that's like the EA side, but the US and Western Europe side is let's try to just be good, supportive global actors that do lots of foreign aid raise goodwill, say, join up with the liberal democracies and do well. Or people, for example, where China might have uh, set some developing countries up into debt poverty traps. We'll go to the developing country and find some way to get them out of that trap. If it involves us buying you out of your debt or something like that, we'll buy you out of your debt. Just come to our side and don't be trapped by China. So that's worth the money if we get an ally out of it. And let's buy some of these. So the value proposition for the dictators around the world, it will stay an aristocratic person and your your kids will be taken care of mm -hmm. yeah, your descendants forever so i this is an interesting way to look at the problem because leaders are self-interested mm -hmm. and, and they're worried about losing power and, and maybe getting getting executed which happens with a, a relative frequency for dictators one thing that might prevent this from happening is is kind of public repugnance at the idea of the leader of North Korea who dominated this people and did horrific things. He is now a kind of star that we follow the life of. Do you think this would be realistic? We've made deals with bad people many times before. <laughs> so uh, yeah. if it's one yeah. of those and safety's at the end of it, I, I think we'll be able to pull this one off. I agree that it would be a price uh, worth paying. But what what about the, so if we convince dictatorial world leaders to give up their nuclear weapons, don't we lose this advantage of the, the kind of um, mutually assured destruction that prevents totalitarianism? If that's the way it's going, and it's global democracy, as in there's one government over the world democratically elected by every human being in the world. Uh, the thing I like about that structure is now we've, found a structure within which collective action problems are nicely solved. Everybody within this structure, you won't have this division where uh, maybe one small actor is taking one in 1,000 risks of destroying everybody for uh, awesome profits. So if we can stamp out those collective action problems and it's global structures that are really good at doing that, where all the people, like, I don't want to be smashed by some corporation that is risking everybody on Earth's life for profit, they'll push for regulation to stamp out whatever kind of technology could kill us all. That's how you get the nuclear weapons put away. So you have all these authoritarian dictators with their nuclear weapons, and you're like, let's fold this into one big system. And they're like, okay, we'll take all the bribes and incentives and do that. And you're like, okay, in this one big system, look, we're all one country now. We're all one country. And all the dangerous toys get put away. So, yeah. So the worry here is centralization uh, and a central point of failure in the leadership of the world government that could result in a previously liberal and democratic world government turning totalitarian. Mm -hmm. If there's no option to exit one country for another country, if you dislike the policies of one country, a world in, in, with a world government is a world without alternatives for citizens in a sense. And so how how would we prevent centralized power from from being corrupting yeah so one of the things i see in the cases where we've had disasters with centralized power when we've had them in the sort of nation state period let's say over the last 100 200 years uh, so i i think I, I, democratic peace theory comes in various versions and 
claims about the ability of democracy to prevent things like famine come in various versions. But hey, Amartya Sen won the Nobel Prize for a very good reason. And his argument is actually prefigured by Bentham, because Bentham thinks if you have democracy, political power will be aligned with total utility because it's fundamentally controlled by the smart utility having entities. Now, getting the animals in and getting the future people in is tricky, but at least you have something where the present people are good at not getting themselves killed. Now, there are some places where democracy has done something weird, and probably the best example of this, where democracy did something that was unhappy, was Nazi Germany falling back or being created by the collapse of uh, the Weimar state. But a funny thing about that case is, first of all, you can get all kinds of instability when you have formation of like initially new governments. So we'll have, I, I don't, I, I can't boast of the world government that it will be initially easy to set up and there will be some trouble at the beginning. But once the thing gets stable, democracy has a tendency to trundle on. Even in the US, the only reason Donald Trump won, he got fewer votes and we had built something bizarre into our constitution that got the fewer votes person winning. So there was all kinds of imperfect democracy in the first place that allowed this to even happen. So we have cases like that. The other big thing that's in the Trump case and in the Hitler case too is rises of ethnic nationalism. So that's where you get uh, a majority, an ethnic majority party forming very cohesively and then following dumb ideas that happen to be part of the special set of ideas of that ethnic majority and then pursuing those. Uh, in Trump's case, it was various forms of racism that his followers were fans of that would get them to want building a wall on the Mexican border. In the Hitler case, well, we know what that was. It was German nationalism of a certain kind, uh, Aryan nationalism of the type that we saw there. So when you have a world government, <laughs> ethnic nationalism is a little bit harder because humanity as a whole is running it. And a mix of entities it's you just don't get the dynamics of 90% of us are one way. Let's smash all the uh, small minorities and uh, make a pure racial state of us. You just couldn't do that in a global democracy. The votes just don't work out. What about the, the other side? There's an inbuilt protection against ethnic nationalism in a liberal democratic world government. But is there an inbuilt protection against kind of the Stalinism or communism as, as we saw it in, in the USSR? Mm. Could we imagine a situation in which, and here I'm making this, uh, what I'm drawing on here is a, um, it's a paper by Brian Kaplan from, from one of the earliest uh, collections of, of um, papers on catastrophic risks in which he worries about totalitarianism as, as a stable system that, that uh, prevents us from reaching our potential. There might be surveillance technology, imagine extremely advanced surveillance technology that keeps a centralized state in power, even if it's mistreating its people, because it's, it could be capable of manipulating the, the wishes of the population, manipulating what can't be said, what cannot be criticized. Yeah. Is, is this something to worry about? I, I don't see how this scenario develops. So suppose we've already got our liberal democratic world government set up. Everybody around the world is voting. They have a secret ballot. They can vote as they want. If the government's bad in some way, as long as they have the secret ballot and they can vote as they want, they'll vote for somebody who decides less surveillance, if it really is that bad, or surveillance that doesn't cause whatever problem is being caused. So as long as we get robust enough democratic structures, 
we just hold that off. Now, maybe there's some kind of way to break the system into that, but I, I just don't see what it is. And then you can, once you have the world government, you can build up even more. If, if you're seeing certain potential threats arise of that nature, I don't see how it would form. Uh, you could just set up some constitutional rights that are really hard to fight through to defend your structure effectively. So that, there's a lot of things you can do to prevent that. So I don't see how that comes up. I can see why somebody would think, okay, we, well, yeah, here's one of the things about the Soviet Union situation. Look, what's going on in Russia in the early 1900s is really grim. This is just not a well-run state. This is low life expectancy. And if you look at the life expectancy in early Russia, we're, we're just talking about at some points, this is below 40 years. If, if I recall correctly, definitely below 50. It's just it's pretty miserable there. And what's going on with the actual governance? You've got, okay, you've got Rasputin, to put it that way. You've just got like random clowns showing up, convincing the queen that they can cure the prince and then getting massive political power out of this. This is just not a state that's run well. And once people are wealthy enough, they don't want to participate in bomb-throwing revolutions. They don't want to do instability. They want to own stocks and they want their daughters to have piano lessons. So... Yeah, they're doing that now, and, and they aren't going to cause trouble. So if you get enough people like that who are good middle-class liberal democratic voters who don't want to do violence, the energy for authoritarian upheaval is much weaker. Maybe there's some new way to get that kind of state. Maybe there's something, and maybe an AI could do it in some dangerous way or something like that at some future point, but it doesn't look anything like the ones we've seen before. And I think those early models are just so, they're obsolete models for how to set it up. There might be some future model that can set it up and people need to look into that. But really, if the kind of power that could set that up within a liberal democratic world government is a kind of power that can probably blow up the world under the other. And I just don't see that we are losing on even the totalitarian world government scenario, because the other scenario seems to be destruction. If we don't go for world government, we don't survive the centuries, as far as I can tell. Let me paint you a scenario, and I don't know how, how credible this scenario is, but uh, imagine we'd have a liberal democratic world government, and we set up, a, we set up an agency within this government to monitor uh, for uh, engineered pandemics. And for this purpose, we're interested in checking the communication of everyone, whether they're sending these strings of information that could potentially be turned into deadly virus. Okay. Imagine that this agency wants to uphold its own existence. It wants to continue existing and continue getting funding. And we want to become promoted uh, within the agency. So again, we're thinking of, of governments, a, a government agents as all agents as self-interested. And so imagine they, for this purpose, they must continually find risks and the, the definitions of, of what the risks are, are expanding. And so you could imagine this becoming like a secret police with future AI technology to, to check everyone's communication continually. And then say that the leaders of the world government are not especially satisfied when people critique them. Why not stamp down on this to stay in power? Uh, again, I don't know how credible this is, but it's one possible scenario maybe. What I'm seeing in this is the power of universal surveillance must be controlled very tightly. We've got to make sure no agency gets able to do that. Now, there are tricky things in making sure that agencies 
do that, especially as they could do it very quietly. That's the thing that's really risky. I don't have a solution to the quietness problem immediately. And I'd require some people who are smart about technology to look into what you'd have to do about that. And definitely the future governance structures, we could even design future governance structures that anybody who has that power, you know, has to share it with N other entities or something like that, who can also check the work and lots of checks and balances would have to be in the system. One nice thing that humanity has achieved to some extent is that some societies are pretty good at keeping the deadly weapons that you can use to kill civilians from being used by the people whose hands they aren't in to kill the civilians. And societies are better and worse at this. The police violence situation in the U.S. is an example of some people getting out of hand with this and problems result. But you can regulate properly on the immediate ability to kill. And that's a really powerful ability. If that gets out of hand, uh, I actually worry a little bit that in the U.S. it might be a little bit out of hand if politicians are somewhat afraid that police might shoot them or something like that if they talk against police interests. So there may be something of that kind going on in certain places in the U.S., I worry. And if you get let something have that kind of power, it's dangerous. But we have ways in some places of properly making sure that if anyone's going to use that kind of power, they have to explain an answer to a whole bunch of other people about what they're using it. So if you build up those kinds of structures, and places successfully have, not everything is an immediate gun to your head state in the world. So if we can just build it up like that, use whatever checks and balances system suitably modified that we use to control all the arms and put it over the surveillance, it seems pretty good to me. Yeah. Okay, so a world government, if it's liberal and democratic, would, would definitely be an improvement for billions of people around the world. And one other worry is that a government like this would be stable in a way that prevents experimentation. So I, I see progress as basically conjecture and refutation. So <laughs> we want experimentation in government structures and in ways of regulating society. And maybe a world government will prevent this. Maybe we wouldn't have information about which systems are better than others because we, we cannot experiment. This is something I think to keep in mind when designing global governance structures. But one thing that I think would at least mitigate that worry would be just understanding what the function of the world government is and what the function of local governments would be. So the function of the world government, as I see it, is to solve collective action problems that affect the entire world. And these technological risks are examples of collective action problems. M militaries are things that we have because we have borders across which hostile entities might be. You get rid of them. Defense spending goes to zero, unleashes so much money. I really like that part of world government. So we can just now spend it on fun stuff and on science and keeping us safe and universities and whatever, all that will stay. Uh, now, when we have a world government solving these collective action problems, there's plenty of room for all kinds of local governments to do things like managing local city infrastructure. Because really, well, the world government, why would it need to do that? And if people want to have, in China, if they want to have their festivals a certain way, and in France, if they want to have different festivals, fine, the local governments will put those on. And all kinds of things can be done. Just which body is the best at handling this? Collective action problems that affect everybody, go to the world. Stuff in your town, go to the town. And so you'll have experimentation between all the uh, little towns and cities and all that. And uh, then they can pick up the best from each other. But you might lose experimentation in how to solve global collective action problems. We should be slow in that because 
that's what we're doing to prevent the end of the world. Going a little bit slow on things that if we get them wrong, we don't get another chance is, I think, justified. I am genuinely undecided about this issue. I, I find it uh, extremely difficult to reason about the, the trade-offs in centralization versus decentralization. It's a, I think it's an evolving topic. I think effective altruism needs to think more about this issue. Good, good. Yeah, I'll give my support for democratic centralism to solve collective yep. action problems. Yep. Let's end by discussing what effective altruism is doing wrong. This is one of the, the, the favorite topics for my listeners is to, is to hear how they're, they're wrong. And you, you have been a member of this movement for, for let's say a decade. So what's interesting would be to know where your views diverge the most from the effective altruist mainstream views. One mistake is to think that effective altruists are unified enough that we, there's one thing we could all be doing wrong. Yeah. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. As a global EA myself, I've just been through so many different communities and the two big centers of gravity for EAs, Oxford, where a bunch of giving what we can-ish stuff is headquartered in the Bay Area, where uh, 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 a lot of our pro EA billionaires and AI people are. So we, we have these two centers. And the Bay Area culture, I think, is something that a lot of people have a bunch of feelings about that does express itself in the movement. But we have a lot of other places too. And I've seen EA chapters in Hong Kong and Singapore and uh, all over the world. When our Africans get going, I look forward to that. When our Indians get going, especially, I just look forward to the EA kids of the future. The ones who like uh, are just the sort of saved generation. So who they themselves took the deworming pills. They themselves had the bed nets. Oh, when they rise, it'll be beautiful. And we'll just have a diverse population of people. It's just moving that way. The ideas are mainstreaming and as they do, we just get more diverse. So that's really good. And I'm just, I'm very optimistic about the movement. There's a lot of little things that I could pick on here and there. I wish more people were into your naturalistic, realist, uh, utilitarian combination in the philosophy. Too many anti-realists out there in the, uh, in the real world EA side who don't know how much objective and universal moral value is worth for the project. And uh, too many non-naturalists in the meta-ethics side who uh, have bought into the dogmas of the past 25, 30 years in meta-ethics and don't know that good old British empiricism with Hume and Hutchison and all these good folks, Adam Smith and Locke, are back there to save the day and get us into the ethics of uh, Mill and Bentham. That's all out there. But yeah, I'm optimistic about the movement. I, I really think we do have a lot of good people pushing us in a good direction, and we're only going to get better ones as time passes. Sorry to disappoint, but we're doing really well. Okay, there's been a development in effective altruism from from the early beginnings. That there was a lot of focus on on global health uh, charities rating the effectiveness of of global health interventions. As the decade has passed, we've seen a more focus go towards preventing existential risks from nuclear, from pandemics, from AI. And I don't want to overstate this because the original kind of the origins of EA involves that. People such as Eliza Yudkowsky, uh, who was very into AI risk in the mid 2000s. One of the central figures, Holden Kanofsky, William McCaskill, Toby Ord, uh, were, were aware of these risks and interested in them. Uh, 
from the beginning. Do you see EA changing focus again as radically as, as we might characterize it as, as having changed? Is there some other place we could land? Is there some development towards another focus that, that we haven't yet discovered? I actually have suggested one to you just uh, in the last uh, hour or so, which is a political focus towards global liberal democracy. That, that's where I think the long-termist solution pushes us there. The global poverty people, I think, will push us there too and actually help us get there by cashing up the poor. Because it's, it'll, it'll be easier to just get liberal democracy with Africa being an economically productive, reasonably well-to-do place. Because it's just when you have inequality of a massive kind, just getting a unified structure around everybody is tough because the rich Westerners are like, do I have to give away all my money? to the Africans? Uh, how do we get one unified political system for people who might believe completely different things because they have different educational situations back there? Okay, so you have much more trouble there. But suppose you just raise everybody to a similar level. Now global poverty is coming together with the international cooperation people. And now we're working together to do the long-term thing. So I actually see those two sides as unified in the kind of project that I've suggested. And once you get liberal democracy globally, and once Africa gets to vote on social welfare policy, all right, now some money goes out there and we can do it in a proper formalized government run kind of way and uh, get all the sort of power of that behind it. Get all the efficiency that you can get once you really try to do that. Give people a good, some kids growing up with an unfortunate parent situation and doesn't have enough resources. Make sure the kid gets food and gets all the resources that, that are needed. Children growing up in poverty is just human capital on fire. Just put out the fire. This is just a huge thing that needs to be done. I, I'm for massive redistribution. Destroy incentives and put out that human capital fire that we've got burning in the world. That's my dad. Goodness knows what happens to him if, if he doesn't eat. Uh, and then, and, well, uh, I might not get born. I, I don't really know what happens in the 60s and 70s. He probably survives that. Maybe he marries my mom, but maybe he like doesn't do well in school because he couldn't eat and just falls out of school, you know, could happen. Yeah. So, right. It's just, there's so much we could do where I think the EA foci are coming together in a nice way. If you want to deal with wild animal suffering, having a world government is going to make it a lot easier. So... Yeah, there's just all kinds of problems that get solved together at once by the structure. And I really see the EA movement, maybe it discovers some new cause areas, but I don't see anything that pushes it towards some radical tearing apart. We have disagreement, we'll have disagreement. I, so far, I've seen healthy disagreement. There's a bunch of dogmatic people who are dogmatic about AI being the big thing, global poverty being the big thing, and AI is stupid, or animals. There's dogmatic people, but there's a big core of people who understand that all these causes are important in some way and are, are just thinking about them together. And I think that's the way to think about them. Thank you for, for spending this time with me. Your enthusiasm is wonderful. The way you present your ideas is convincing with, with the enthusiasm. I'm honored to hear that, Gus. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity.